0: Welcome to the Falk Salem Podcast. Each month, we'll bring you a mix of operational announcements and clinical pieces to keep you up to speed. Through our monthly podcasts, our goal is to put the tools and education right in the palm of your hand. By keeping you up to date, we hope that we can empower you to continue bringing exceptional medical care to the city of Salem and beyond. Any and all material we release has been edited to comply with HIPAA standards.
1: For this month's podcast... We have some more good stuff lined up for you here. We're going to start with a exercise on documentation to continue off with last month's efforts to improve documentation overall in EMS. Following that, we have our employee spotlight with Mr. Charles Bishop, who's a medic here at Falk here in Salem. Following that, we have a piece on insulin as our focused prescription medication. Dustin Pearson then brings us a piece on emotionally disturbed patients, focusing on schizophrenia disorders. Next, we have a piece put together by our own Bianca Paul, who will cover the basics of cardiology and the anatomy and physiology of the heart. She also has a very special guest, a former employee here at Falk by the name of Blaze, who is a flight nurse with REACH here in the Oregon area. We'll continue off with the message about how important cardiology and the understanding of electrocardiograms can be for paramedics and EMTs in our entire career field. Finally, I have a piece on resiliency and cultivating resiliency in yourself so that you can have a long and fruitful career in emergency medical services. Thanks again for joining us here today, and we wish you the very best. Here are a few local announcements that we have. Uh, First off, I wanna say a big, huge congratulations to a local graduating paramedic class. Um, We had four employees going through a transition from emergency medical technician to paramedic, and they tackled this amidst all the challenges that COVID could potentially bring them. And for this graduating class out of Chemeketa's university, Corey, Brody, Jacob, and Eric, We're so proud of you guys for knocking this out and for taking that leap and for having to almost do double the amount of work that has to be done um, in paramedic school, doing it remotely, doing it online, being somewhat of your own educator in some cases. Congratulations on getting through that exceptionally hard course and we look forward to seeing you guys working in the field here. That also being said, we have some new employees who are part of our new employee uh, orientation program. I'd like to welcome Jaden, Anna, Aaron, and our newest EMT, Riley, to the team. Welcome. Thank you guys for being a part of our team and have a great time working. And uh, we hope to interview you here sometime here on the podcast and hear where you all came from. That being said, we are also hiring still. Uh, We do have some job opportunities, both part-time and full-time out there. And together with our partnership with Marion County, our vaccination program is really starting to take flight. And we'll be working with Marion County to help bring vaccinations out into the community. If that seems like something that you're interested in and you are a state certified EMT or paramedic, We have those opportunities as well as working in a pretty progressive 911 system, working in a fast-paced, high-call-volume system here in Salem, and we'd love for you to interview and be part of the team. If you're interested, take a look online and check us out, see what we uh, can potentially offer you. You can find those opportunities through Google searching Falk Northwest or Falk here in Salem. One last reminder here for anybody who's looking to research with the National Registry of Emergency Medical Technicians. That research cycle is coming up here real quick in March. Remember that uh, NREMT has opened up the gates towards relaxing some of those in-person requirements for recertification hours. You can collect recertification hours by looking up any course that is CAPC accredited. This can be an online course. So long as it is CAPC accredited, those hours can go towards your NREMT recertification thanks to COVID. That stuff has at least been relaxed here for this particular research cycle here in 2021. If you need more information about that, check it out at NREMT.org. Uh, but that research cycle here is coming up pretty quick in March. I'd like to throw a big, heartfelt thank you out there to everyone who participated in our most recent blood drive here in February. Uh, We received 23 pints of blood, and that could help up to 66 people. Some folks have been donating for a while. Some folks, this was their very first time. Thank you again for making that life-saving donation. An interesting point to throw on out there. If you're interested in donating blood with the American Red Cross, They are testing all blood donations right now for COVID-19 antibodies. Now, why is this significant considering we've been living with the COVID virus for a long time? Let's say that you've been vaccinated and you're either in your first or your second round of vaccines. That's great. That means that your body is forming antibodies. If you want some proof, though, that you actually have had an antibody response inside of yourself, A great way to do that is gonna be to donate blood. That way they can actually see that you're gonna pop positive for antibodies being present in your bloodstream. It's a great idea to understand if your vaccine actually took hold and if you have COVID-19 antibodies. The other cool thing is, is that they're also offering $5 Amazon gift cards for uh, anybody who comes and uh, donates. So look for a drive near you today. Look for a drive regionally. The need for blood has, almost never been greater considering it's so hard to get blood drives organized right now during covid take a look out there and give it a try see if it's something that you might be able to help folks out with one very last note that i have for you here is recently up in the pacific northwest uh, we've gone through a little bit of another weather related disaster with a nice deep freeze coming through and knocking out power for tens of thousands and toppling trees and uh In some cases, ruining homes and uh, really just making one more big challenge that we're all trying to pull through and get together with. Thank you, everyone who stepped up to the plate, who has backed each other up and who's run the mutual aid calls and who's come together as a team, come together even as a region um, to help respond to those emergencies and help each other in need overcome once again another monumental task of responding to emergency medical needs in the midst of a massive power outage in the middle of a nice deep freeze and an ice storm and uh, trees falling down and power lines coming down in the region that's really significant and I know for a fact that if it wasn't for people who volunteered to step up to the plate and to go out there and to be with people during those moments of need and do those welfare checks and be a part of the responder community, the city would have been in a much more difficult place. The region would be in much worse shape than it is right now. And a huge thank you to all of the linemen um, and line women that are out there and all of the people who are working to restore power to the community, to the cities that are out there in need, to the uh, folks that are delivering fuel and to the uh, places that are actually distributing food and giving support to those areas. It's really, really amazing to see all those things come together. So thank you so much for all of the hard work that you're doing. It really is appreciated. For this month's documentation piece, I'd like us to do an exercise. Let's look at a fictitious narrative written in the SOAP format. This narrative should help illustrate the tenets of good charting and habits. This is also a good exercise for listening to details and looking for indicators as you determine in your own mind, what is this patient's major medical concern and how is this patient being treated in comparison to how you might treat this patient. So, we begin. You've been dispatched by 911 to a local business for a 32-year-old female complaining of being nauseated. You responded emergent to the scene, co-response with local fire department, Engine 1. S, the patient has been feeling nauseated for the last four days at home, has vomited multiple times, and has not been able to eat food or drink normally. This morning, the patient awoke feeling better and came to her business today, but a few hours later began vomiting and feeling weak. 911 was called by the patient's coworker. Patient denies headache, dizziness, or vertigo, denies losses of consciousness, but feels weak when standing or attempting to walk, denies falling or injuring her head or her body, denies fever or chills, Denies head or chest congestion, cough, shortness of breath, or difficulty breathing, or other signs of COVID-19. Denies chest pain, pressure, or palpitations. States that her abdomen hurts in all quadrants, but feels the worst in her lower right quadrant. Pain reported is a six out of 10, radiating to the rest of the abdomen, and worsens when she vomits. Denies blood or coffee grounds in her emesis. Denies problems passing urine or stool. Reports irregular menses. Is currently not taking birth control medications and reports that the last known menstrual cycle was approximately two months ago. She does have a medical history of having a previous appendectomy. O. Oh, on arrival, found patient in the restroom of her business, tracking normally, speaking in complete sentences. AAO times four, so alert and oriented times four. Skin is pale, cool, and diaphoretic. Pupils are pearl at three millimeters. Face is symmetrical. No evidence of injury to the head, face, or neck. The trachea is midline without JVD. Equal chest rise and fall observed. Lung sounds are clear equal bilaterally. 12-lead EKG shows sinus arrhythmia without ectopy, noted no ST changes or T-wave changes with a QTC of 0.379. The patient is exhibiting guarding. Abdomen is rigid to the touch without distension, and patient indicating right lower quadrant when asked to localize pain. Vomit appears to be bile inconsistency without evidence of blood, BGL found to be 112, oral temperature 97.9 Fahrenheit. A section, abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting, weakness, rule out pregnancy versus ectopic pregnancy versus GIGU emergency versus nausea and vomiting of unknown etiology. The P section, our plan, Unseen, patient was able to stand with two rescuer assistants, moved to the cot where she was placed semi-fowlers as positioned to protect her airway during vomiting spells. Vitals completed and patient was monitored during transport due to application of medications. Admin, IV, 20 gauge, left forearm, placed on a saline lock. Admin, saline bolus, 500 milliliters over course of transport. Admin, Zofran, four milligrams IV push for nausea, reports no change in her nausea after 10 minutes. Admin, 50 micrograms of fentanyl for pain control, reports improvement of pain from a six out of 10 to a five out of 10. Admin, second dose of Zofran, four milligrams IV push for nausea, patient reports improvement of nausea and reduced urge to vomit. Second dose of analgesia provided, 50 micrograms of fentanyl. Noted patient's reported pain improved from five out of 10 to a two out of 10. Patient now reports pain as tolerable at this level. Transported patient non-emergent to a local emergency room. On arrival, taken to room 12. Care transferred to RN Jane. Patient signed PCR under section one on her own behalf. Moved patient to the hospital bed via use of a multiple rescuer sheet lift and slide. Placed semi-fowlers. Belongings were left at the bedside with the patient. Medic 99 cleared. Now, listening to this chart, you might see things that contrast your own charting habits working with this type of a patient. Did it spark your curiosity about what's you know going on with this patient, what's the underlying condition? What kinds of differential diagnoses were you thinking when you listened to the S and the O sections of the narrative? How about would you have run a 12 lead? or would you have administered pain medications to this patient? This is an important contrast as when you read a narrative, especially one that is not your own, it starts sparking these questions and you start painting a picture of what this patient was complaining of versus what was done for this patient. And in a lot of cases, rereading a narrative does a heck of a lot for helping you to understand how you can write better narratives. And an even better example is to read your partner's narratives. I mean, for no other reason other than you're signing that patient care report, too, and you should know what is being said inside of that patient care report. It will also help you to better understand how you write your narratives versus how other people write their narratives as well. It's important to show not only that we're doing procedures, and whether or not those procedures had supporting findings. For example, being able to show that uh, we were palpating this patient's abdomen, we found it to be rigid, but not distended. Um, The patient was also localizing pain in the lower right-hand quadrant, but it was also important to document the procedures that had the negative findings as well. In this case, perhaps the 12 lead. You know, the patient is probably not a cardiac patient, but it's a good rule out to begin with. The other thing is, is going back to that QTC, we're discussing the QT interval. There are certain medications out there that actually increase or elongate the QT interval, and Zofran is one of them. So by documenting prior to medication administration, what was the patient's QTC? We wanna make sure that that QTC isn't prolonged in any case, And so we've documented it as being relatively normal at 0.379. After that, we've administered uh, Zofran to the patient. It might be prudent to run a second 12-lead or at least be able to provide that information to the hospital so when they run a 12-lead, if they happen to, they can compare the two things that are there. The other thing is that if we did find the patient to be in a prolonged QT syndrome um, or already be prolonged because of other medications or other things that they might be using, alcohol, uh, for instance. In that case here, we want to be careful about additional doses of Zofran, and we want to monitor that patient for an arrhythmia. By documenting that we ran that 12 lead, by documenting those things that are there, this is going to start showing a mastery of a skill, not just root memorization of how do we deal with a patient who is you know perhaps uh, nausea or vomiting we're thinking even farther outside of the box and we're documenting not only our positive findings but our negative findings there what other things might be missing from this chart some folks like to list their vital signs inside of their narrative however the vital signs are also listed in another uh, place in the chart they're listed in the vital signs section to include things like gcs scores However, it might really be prudent to put vital signs that are cornerstone decision points on why you gave uh, procedures the way that you did. If the vital signs are trending normally and are hemodynamically stable without gross anomalies on either side, you could probably just leave those in your vital signs section. However, if you're making a clinical treatment point based upon a vital sign, like profound hypotension, or profound bradycardia to justify the administration of like epinephrine or atropine or pacing, or perhaps you have a patient that is so uh, tachycardic that you've decided now to synchronize cardiovert, those vital signs should be listed as supporting measures inside of your narrative. So in this case here, we gave the patient 500 milliliters of uh, saline. I would want to know a little bit more about was the patient hemodynamically stable Were we justifying the saline based upon maybe dry mucosa? Or maybe the patient has been vomiting now for a number of days in a row, and we want to improve that patient's hydration level. Now, it's subtly said inside of the narrative that perhaps that was the reasons why we were doing that. However, it didn't flat out blatantly say why we were giving that saline there. So it leaves the reader to have to try to interpret what was going on there, or it leaves the, uh, uh, the reader wanting to ask questions. We need to show not only what the patient was complaining of, but when we make interventions, we wanna show how that patient improved, or perhaps even didn't change to those interventions. Case in point, when we are dealing with uh, the P section here, Uh, We gave Zofran to this patient. The patient did not have any changes with that first dose of IV push Zofran. So then we ended up giving a second dose of Zofran 10 minutes later, and the patient then reported improvement in their symptoms in this case. If we're only documenting the totals that we're giving, because maybe it's faster. So in your plan section would look a little bit more like administered a total of eight milligrams of Zofran. Patient reported that her nausea had improved. In our flow chart, it's going to show that we gave two separate doses of Zofran 10 minutes apart. But in the narrative, it almost reads like we loaded up two vials of Zofran and pushed eight milligrams IV in one push. So when we're only reporting totals, your narrative ends up reading a little bit differently than how your flow chart reads. The other thing is, is that your flow chart should corroborate what's going on in your narrative. The things that you have going on in your flow chart, especially in that chronological order, you wanna make sure that your narrative also supports those things. Now we gave this patient two individual doses of 50 micrograms of fentanyl. If you're doing this via a weight base uh, versus just a standing uh, order, perhaps your orders are to give one to two micrograms per kilogram um, in your uh, doses. If you're choosing part of that, if you're giving, if you're given a range in your protocol, perhaps you're calculating etomidate or, uh, you know, something like that, that's got a lot more clinical significance to it. Make sure you're adding the weight somewhere inside of your narrative for future calculations. I hope sections like this talking about documentation, highlighting the differences and how we're documenting things. I'm hoping this improves uh, your own charts and helps you to make your own charts a little bit more professional and maybe even a little bit more efficient.
2: Hello everyone. And welcome back today. We're going to be doing our employee spotlight. And today our employee spotlight is going to be Mr. Charles Bishop. Charles has been with the organization for several years now. He was an EMT and has worked his way up to becoming a medic. So, let me introduce you to Mr. Bishop.
3: Hey everyone.
2: So, what made you want to go and become a paramedic?
3: Being an EMT was kind of boring, especially just being the ambulance driver for most of the time. I decided to go paramedic against Pierce's judgment. He told me not to several times. I wanted to do something a little bit more and have some fun and actually get to use my brain and from there i just got kind of plugged in and i absolutely love the medicine aspect of everything getting to use my brain and slightly step outside protocols to call online (laughs) medical control and (laughs) do different things and get approval from that but i absolutely love it now
2: how has your view changed for medicine from starting off as an emt and moving on to a medic
3: As an EMT, everything's so limited. I mean, you're trained to recognize basic emergencies. I barely used my EMT scope, I felt like. I got to give Narcan a few times, never did the epi. I gave glucose, and I think that's pretty much about it. Uh, From there, you know, kind of learning more about what's going on inside the body with each several different types of emergency, it really just kind of opened my eyes about how great medicine was and how everyone can present differently and no one reads the book, so no one goes off the exact signs and symptoms and you actually have to use your brain.
2: Yeah, we have this saying called a cookbook medic. We don't like those. You have to know your protocols, but we don't want you reading from your protocols every time you're on a call. How are you approaching your calls?
3: Depends on the call. Uh, One of the things I learned early on, towards the end of my internship, right before I was gonna test, was from Cole. And it was for patients who were severely nauseated and vomiting, people with migraine headaches who were severely nauseated and vomiting. You realize that Zofran doesn't do a whole lot once they're actually throwing up and you pushing that Zofran doesn't do anything. Mm -hmm. So I learned about the Haldol and Benadryl combo from Cole. And unfortunately, it's not in our protocol. I know it is in some other people's protocols, so I decided from there, you know, I'd start trying to use that and see what else I can adapt along the way. And so I've called online medical control at least over 10 times in the seven months, I think I've, I've been a medic. Uh, constantly asking for Haldol and Benadryl for nauseated, vomiting patients. Uh, I mean, I, I step on a thin line for the most part, as far as protocols and I know QAQI loves those charts, but <laughs> It's definitely fun because you can actually see a difference when you, you when you think outside, just the protocol part.
2: Nice. So how has it been working with your peers that used to be EMTs, and you guys are all EMTs, and now that you're a medic and running the call, how has that dynamic changed?
3: You know, it's funny you ask because the, the ongoing joke right now, at least with Chris and I, is Chris was my FTO when I was an EMT and then Chris was my FTO. And then I dropped down to part-time, went to medic school. During internship, Laywall was my preceptor and Chris was my partner. And then cleared my internship, got my medic. And then next thing you know, I started working with Eric Miley for a few months before he dropped down to go uh, to paramedic school. And then Chris became my partner. So it really just came full circle uh you know some of the emts i've gotten to work with it's been a blast i absolutely love all of our emts in fact they they've saved me more times than i could count chris is probably one of the smartest dudes i know and he's he's taught me stuff i'd never learned in medic school and Mm -hmm. i never would have thought of and that comes from a good solid foundation of bls experience i only had about two years i think before i went and got my medic but you know the people who stay BLS for a while and truly get that experience it it truly shows and I absolutely love working with them.
2: Wow you had quite the dynamic from FTO to being there with your internship and now being your partner.
3: Yeah Chris, Chris is definitely one of the great greatest people I've known and he's like I said hands down I think uh He's one of the best partners you could ask for and you know, God bless Steve because he's going to be getting Chris next and <laughs> that's going to be a great shift.
2: That'll be interesting for sure. So I hear that you're looking into critical care management and critical care uh, with AIR or with other locations too. So tell me what's what's driving your your desire to do critical care.
3: Uh, you know, for the most part, it's just wanting to learn more about the medicine aspect. I mean, while I've been doing this for seven months, I've spent you know, what, a year, almost a year in paramedic school, and during that year, I was reviewing or I was uh, attending doctors' lectures on EKGs and cardiology and all this other crazy stuff. And yeah, you know, it really just kind of kind of ignited the the fuel, you know, for me to want to. Do more with my life, and then talking to Cole, and everyone knows Cole's the smartest dude around here, hands down. <laughs> yes, he is. Uh, Steve too. Talking to Steve, Steve's been doing this forever. I mean, he was critical care. He he told me a bunch of great stories. I absolutely love Steve. But uh, as far as it goes, you know, just wanting to, you know, step out of my comfort zone. I like being a paramedic here, and I plan on being a paramedic here for definitely a few more years. You know, really get that experience in. But, uh, you know, attending these critical care courses and all this other free continuing education that's offered definitely doesn't hurt whatsoever to sit sit down and get some free knowledge, you know, see what you're getting into, talk to people who've been in the field. You know, that'll really explain a lot. But, you know, for the most part, I think I'm just, uh, I'm ready to keep getting experience here and soaking all, all this free education while I can.
2: That's awesome. So... Let's talk a little bit about your paramedic school education. How was that? How did that education translate to working as a paramedic?
3: From paramedic school, uh, it's, I went to Chemeketa, so I'm, I'm going to have a bias compared to you know all the other schools. Uh, I always, always recommend Chemeketa. All the instructors there are very knowledgeable. They've been doing this forever. They're really great. A lot of the stuff I learned in paramedic school... It was good for one thing and it was taking the test. Nothing really prepares you for the streets except talking to people who've been in, you know, certain situations and, you know, you really just never know what to expect. In paramedic school, you know, your scene will go fairly smoothly for the most part with the exception of an instructor occasionally throwing you off. But other than that, the scene is so fluid in it because anything can change within a heartbeat. Medic school did not get me ready for that but we all knew how to react and act appropriately for the most part. You know, what you learn in medic school is really good for testing and it's really good for the field, but experience as a BLS provider and you know, experience from talking with other medics and picking their brain is really is really I think what stuck with me the most and has been helping me on further calls
2: so you touched a little bit about your education and that you're picking up free classes and kind of furthering your own knowledge um what are some good resources that some of our viewers or our listeners can listen to or learn from what are some resources you have
3: so i i'm gonna go ahead and throw it out there i do not get paid by any of these people
2: (laughs) thank Um, you very much
3: so uh, first off uh, St. Mm-hmm. Fisher's Church of Evidence-Based Medicine on Facebook. Absolutely, absolutely great page. Yeah, uh, you know, Peace Health is currently running another critical care course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim's a very knowledgeable guy. That's and that's all free. And I think on top of that, he also does uh, BLS and ALS refreshers. Um, there was a program, probably about two months ago. Uh, it was a bunch of doctors that were realized that we needed continuing education still and we weren't doing in-person. And so they had put out, I think, about 30 or 36 hours of free continuing education and a lot of smart people on there, uh, especially Jim Ducanto, the inventor of the salad maneuver and the Ducanto catheter, really knowledgeable guy. Uh, and he does, he does occasional classes online. Uh, some of the podcasts I listen to... Obviously, this one from time to time when I can catch it, you know, picking Cole's brain, of course. Um, Pragmatic Paramedics is another good one. Uh, EMS 2020 is another good one. That's ran by two paramedics. One is Life Flight, I believe, and the other one is still currently working with Metro West. And then I I still use my textbooks from paramedic school and I still got the critical care book and I even got my EMT book still and you never know from time to time when you're going to have to just kind of look back and you know refresh on something because you get something every now and then that you probably never seen before you maybe seen once and you got to refresh on you know what you need to do for it
2: oh absolutely so when uh, describe your first day as a paramedic with me i remember when i finally <laughs> ended up on a truck by myself and i ran my first call and it was simple right like it was just vomiting give them some Zofran and they'll be fine because they drink too much. And I was petrified and I'm looking around and I'm like, oh, oh no, it's me now. <laughs> so tell me what your first experience was, your first call, officially being a paramedic, being the one in charge and looking around and going, it's just you.
3: <laughs> so I'm going to skip the first call because it's a, it, it goes into a lot greater detail than what needs to be said on a podcast. Um <laughs> I think it was the second call. I had, I cleared FTAP tap. I cleared F in the two and a half days, and they needed me to work that night. So that already alone kind of put me on edge. And uh, Jake Royer can attest to how how weird this call was. Uh, we got tapped out to a care home for a guy who pulled out his G tube, and it was just a code code one response or code two response and. All they wanted was for him to be taken to the hospital and get a new g-tube put in and so we get out there it's like I think 2 2 30 a.m. and by the way this is probably one of the hardest lessons I've learned in EMS too but you know going for going on with the call we got there it's completely dark in the back they met us outside this guy is working hard to breathe he's nonverbal at baseline and he only understands Spanish Uh, so We get him off the wheelchair and onto the gurney, and the second he hits the light in the back of the ambulance, you just saw this horrendous look on his face that he was scared and he was sick. Uh, His breathing was about 42 times a minute. His uh, end title was about 22. Uh, I think his blood pressure, if I remember right, was about 200 over 102. And his temperature was like 90, I think it was like 99.2. It was very, very low grade. But anyway, so we're in the back and I look at Jake and I'm like, I, you know, I think this is sepsis, you know. And this is where I like to utilize my EMTs too to make sure what I'm saying doesn't sound stupid. And so, you know, I told Jake, I was like, I think this is sepsis. So, we're, you know, we're going through the sepsis screening together. And, you know, while his blood pressure might not be, it, everything else is... Standing there, and you know, per the per the facility, he's baseline, but it doesn't seem like he's baseline. So we're on scene. We tried two attempts in IV. This guy just has nothing. He's a dialysis patient. To make it worse, so I tell Jake, you know, just drive drive a little bit faster. But you know, code two for the most part. You know, just drive fast. So we're going down the road, and because he's septic, I'm so focused on working on a line. And then I realized I don't have a four lead on. So I throw the four lead on. And then I go back to working on the line. I think I attempted four times on this guy. Just could not get anything. We get to the hospital and I realized I hadn't done a 12 lead. And I was like, well, you know, it is what it is. Well, we get to the hospital and we get him a room right away. We had made him a sepsis alert. And like, well, you know, why'd you make him a sepsis alert? And you know, I was like, well, his end tidal respiratory is there enough. He's got a low-grade fever, but, I, you know, something's not right. And he, he just pulled out his g 2 uh, we we cleared that call we went back about an hour later returned with another patient and i go there and they're like we're actually starting to monitor you know st segment now because his st segment starting to elevate a little bit but it wasn't enough to call it wow so they had gone back uh, again did another 12 lead and he ended up having st elevation and two, three avf and so, wow. He ended up developing a full blown STEMI. On top of that, he was septic. I did find that out. I got that part right, but never did the twelve leads, so I never would have saw any ST changes. But they did they were nice enough to show me some of the twelve leads and you know, they're like you can tell, you know, the ST segment's starting to change a little bit. And then they went in there and did another one and they came back like he's having a full blown STEMI on top of sepsis and so
4: Woof
3: uh, never got to find out the outcome of that, but yeah, that was the, that was my first shift as a paramedic and that was I just remember that call, and I look back at it now, and I just laugh because I'm like, there was so much wrong with that patient. He didn't, didn't meet anything I learned in book of sepsis, and he, I did. And for whatever reason, I didn't do the 12 lead. But you know, I, I learned now that every sepsis patient gets a full blown 12 lead.
2: <laughs> so it seems like you are getting a lot of really great experiences um, working as a medic, and it seems like it's really eye opening for you what would you say to some people that are listening right now that are thinking about medic school or starting medic school especially now during COVID time what are some suggestions or advice you can give them
3: you know if you're if you're leaning if you if you're not sure that you want to go to medic school my recommendation is you do it it's it's you know anywhere between eight to ten months depending where you go it's it's challenging it's very doable um I, I obviously, you're gonna have a little bit of a bias on it because once again, one, I, come, I came from Chemeketa, so I always recommend Chemeketa. But two, you know, there's people who can't afford to drop down to part-time. I was able to drop down to part-time and I used my GI Bill to go through medic school so I could manage and actually have a life. But, um, you know, of course, if, you, uh, if you're on that fence, I suggest you talk to more medics, especially a lot of the experienced ones, Wes, Cole. Uh, Blake, you know Blake's smart. He'll he'll t- he'll tell you a lot. And Steve, um, those are just some of the you know the few greats I can I could definitely recommend talking to. But if you're on that if you're on that line, you're not sure, look into it more and you know really think about it. If you love EMS and you love medicine, I highly suggest it. Uh, at the same time, I am very fully aware that nurse pays more. But if you uh, if anyone has any questions about med school, I mean I'm still pretty fresh out, but. You know uh cory just got his paramedic he'll tell you more about paramedic school and how it is especially during covid because their whole term was covid whereas it was just my internship was or my third term and internship was affected by covid mm-hmm. i fully recommend going it's a blast i love being a paramedic i love doing my job and you know getting to see a difference in some of the things i get to do so it's actually a nice feeling
2: well thank you so much for talking with us today you have a fantastic shift Good
3: luck out there, be safe, and enjoy that snow. I'll
1: try. This month's Focus Spotlight piece on patients' medications is gonna focus on the topic of insulin. What is insulin? And how is insulin provided? And how insulin is used by our patients, considering how many diabetics that we run into or how often we are checking the vital sign of glucose on our patients, it's not as simple as when we read hyperglycemia that the patient just needs more insulin. In fact, it's a heck of a lot more complicated than that. So to help broaden that knowledge and build that base about insulin, that base understanding about insulin, we need to understand a few key words here. So I'm going to define those before we launch into our topic. The first one is anabolism or anabolic anabolism or the building of more complex molecules by using smaller pieces. It's antithesis is catabolism, also known as catabolic systems this is going to be the breaking down of more complex molecules into its smaller components. So anabolic versus catabolic one is building uh, one is breaking back down. Another key term to understand is the term hormone a signaling molecule in the body that starts a process to occur. Uh, Think of hormones almost like an email or almost like a set of marching orders that it might receive. The term glucose, this is the most simple form of sugar that is needed uh, by the cells to produce energy. There's another term though that sounds similar to glucose and that's glycogen. Glycogen in and of itself is not glucose, but in fact, glycogen is a complex molecule comprised of multiple glucose strands that have been wound tightly into a group. And this is used as a storage vehicle for storing large amounts of glucose in a much more small space. Glycogen is also considered to be long uh, glucose chains, known as polysaccharide. Another term to define here, glycogenolysis is the catabolism, okay, or the breaking apart or separation of glucose from glycogen chains versus gluconeogenesis, the process of anabolism or anabolic formation of glycogen chains from glucose. So the anabolic form or the building of complex molecules from smaller pieces takes glucose and turns it into glycogen versus glycogenolysis, the catabolic process of breaking off pieces of glucose from a larger glycogen chain. Insulin comes from the Latin word insula, which means island. Insulin is listed as being on the World Health Organization's model list of essential medications and is considered to be one of the most important basic medications needed for a healthcare system to function. Insulin is a complex, large protein hormone that is synthesized by the body in the pancreas, specifically In the islets of Langerhans, there are about a million islets distributed in a healthy human pancreas. Now remember that insulin is a hormone. Insulin is released and secreted from the pancreas in direct relationship to rising glucose levels in the bloodstream. And it's secreted and released by beta cells within the pancreas as a result of that rising glucose interestingly, these beta cells, they also inhibit the secretion of insulin when they detect that glucose levels are actually low in the bloodstream as well. So once again, I feel like it is really important to point out that insulin is not a form of glucose. Insulin is not a sugar. Insulin isn't really something that your body eats and uses for energy. Insulin is a hormone that is released when your body senses that you have a lot of sugar inside of your bloodstream and that sugar is ready to use. Now remember, just because the sugar is inside of your bloodstream, it does not mean that the sugar can get inside of your cells. In fact, that high level of blood sugar inside of your bloodstream requires insulin to allow the sugar to enter the cell. These two are gonna work in conjunction with one another the insulin is now going to help the sugar enter the cells. So when we think about insulin and how a patient will use that in conjunction with their diabetes, they're going to use insulin to help lower their blood sugar level by allowing the blood sugar to enter the cell and actually be used for energy production. Now, insulin also works in an anabolic way in order to help reduce these blood sugar levels that it actually starts to promote your body's desire to store some of this glucose as glycogen. So in the response to a higher blood sugar level, this also kicks off the process of insulin secretion that then cascades down into the generation of glycogen which is glyconeogenesis. This is where it will take these sugars and wrap them up into uh, lipid proteins and wrap them up and turn them into fats and put them into glycogen stores inside of the liver. Insulin is also part of the catabolic function of your body. When insulin is at lower levels inside of the bloodstream, catabolic processes then take over in an effort to try to raise your blood sugar levels. So your body will then start to release more glycogen stores will release more glucose into the bloodstream and try to raise it. Maybe this is already starting to show you a little bit more about diabetes, where if I do not have insulin production, my body might still be in a continuous catabolic process and increasing my own blood sugar levels because insulin is not there to inhibit the catabolic production of glycogen into glucose. Remember that insulin is the anabolic hormone. It is there to try to create more glycogen and create fat reserves and to allow glucose to be absorbed into your cells and give you the energy to be able to use it in an effort to lower your blood sugar levels without insulin there or with mutated insulin that's not actually triggering the stop signal to the catabolic processes of of glycogenolysis, gluconeogenesis cannot occur. So think about this. Insulin now really has not been around for an incredibly long period of time. In fact, it wasn't until 1921 that insulin really had even been discovered as part of the human metabolic processes. And prior to that, people diagnosed with diabetes They had a very short lifespan. These patients continually just lived in diabetic ketoacidosis and suffered the side effects of all of that as well. And before insulin's discovery, patients were on these clinical treatment plans of extremely reduced diets, understanding being the patient had an elevated blood sugar level, the patient's clearly couldn't process sugars, so let's withhold carbohydrates. Let's withhold sugars to these patients to try to get them to survive a little bit better. The American Diabetes Association even reports that some patients were placed on such harsh diets prescribed by their doctors that they would be allowed as little as 450 calories a day. And sometimes patients even died of starvation Um, as a result of this. So as early as 1889, uh, different animal studies started suggesting that the pancreas was responsible for something, some sort of pancreatic function uh, was responsible for helping patients survive any sort of fluctuation in their blood sugar levels. And this was done by literally removing the pancreas of an animal and watching how the animal would then go into these hyperglycemic uh, events. And then later on, it was found that removing the specific portions of the pancreas known as the, uh, as the islets, it was further narrowed down to this was the location where that process was occurring. Anyways, in 1921, a young surgeon named Frederick Banting and his assistant, Charles Best, figured out how to remove insulin from a dog's pancreas and they ended up collecting this thick brown muck and they kept another dog alive that had severe diabetes for an additional 70 days by giving them this extract of this murky concoction. And they postulated that what they were giving that Uh, second dog was actually the miracle piece of the uh, pancreas here that was allowing that other dog to metabolize the sugar. In January of 1922, Leonard Thompson, who was a 14-year-old boy who was dying from diabetes in a hospital in Toronto, was given an injection of this insulin. And within 24 hours, Leonard's high blood glucose levels had dropped to normal levels. And news of this went worldwide because this was going to be a miraculous change for patients who were diagnosed with hyperglycemia and were diagnosed with diabetes. This could now potentially normalize their lives. So fast forward here just a bit. Like wildfire, uh, studies were launched in regards to this And eventually, insulin was discovered to be the cause of all of this. So these uh, studies start to develop ways of recreating insulin, or even starting to harvest insulin from cattle and from pigs um, and from things like that. And what was actually discovered was insulin is not genetically dissimilar by many proteins Uh, when it comes to like humans to cattle. Like there's not many protein differences between the two and cattle insulin was actually used uh, quite a bit. Then it was discovered that pig insulin is actually only one protein difference between porcine insulin would be in comparison to humans. And it was also used um, to help treat this. But then a synthetic form of insulin uh, was made. Actually in uh, 1978, And it used um, the E. coli bacteria to produce insulin. And uh, this was made by a guy by the name of Eli Lilly. And um, in 1982, he went on to sell this as the first commercially available biosynthetic form of human insulin. And that is even around in today called Humulin. Insulin still comes in many forms now and a lot of these uh, insulins have been so genetically replicated that they are absolutely identical to what human insulin would be um, from person to person. Uh, Insulin now is produced in ways where it is um, ultra rapid onset or very fast acting insulin There's also ways of producing it now that make it long acting, meaning that even when it's injected, it releases very slowly and it helps to limit those spikes in blood sugar versus the very fast acting or the ultra rapid onset insulins that are there to immediately start the process off of reducing a patient's blood sugar level. And this is thanks to decades of research that people have been doing on this very topic. Insulin is injected into the subcutaneous tissue, and it's absorbed into the bloodstream through these tissues for uptake and use by cells. It cannot be taken by mouth, because remember, insulin is a protein-based hormone. And like all other proteins that are swallowed and ingested and taken in for human consumption, they are degraded and they are destroyed in the GI tract by the acids by the digestive enzymes that are found there and when it's broken down into its fragments it's useless it's just turned back into its protein derivatives now it comes in forms of like a pen that has a very specific dose uh, that is given subcutaneously it makes it easy for the patient to be able to take this device and deliver the same dose reliably over and over again to an even more reliable setup known as an insulin pump, which takes a uh, subcutaneous catheter uh, that is placed by your doctor's office and it places that in the uh, subcutaneous layers, usually of the belly or off to the sides. And then the patient wears this small pager-like device that has the ability to give uh, long-acting insulin or even bolus dose insulin to the patient on a schedule and this really helps to normalize a patient's lifestyle or even helps to normalize some of the side effects of needing uh, to be around your medication or be around insulin in a fridge or helps a patient to reduce the spikes in their blood sugar and helps them to more reliably target how much insulin a patient should receive. Insulins are not all the same. Most insulins are going to be a byproduct of recombinant DNA technology, or biosynthetic human insulin, which is meant to increase the purity of the insulin versus an extractive animal insulin, which has the risk factor of having additional impurities and the risk factor of antibody formation uh, against it, so that would be a reaction uh, that your body would have with destroying that insulin and not allowing it to be as uh, functional. There has been some success as well in producing a plant-based insulin through a method called biofarming, uh, specifically using the flower called safflower, which is a branched herbaceous thistle-like annual plant. And um, introducing that gene for human insulin into this plant, they have been able to harvest uh, some forms of insulin this way. The first division that we should talk about when we're talking about insulin is whether or not an insulin is an analog versus a human insulin. So there's two types of insulin structures. There's human insulin And this analog insulin human insulins were developed first and were essentially meant to be like identical in structure to the insulin produced in the human body so human insulins qualify as short acting or intermediate acting insulins and compared to rapid acting analogues short acting insulin takes longer to act and it lasts longer in the body analog insulins are similar in structure to human insulins, but they've been modified to have minor structural changes to make them either more rapid in their onset or to delay their onset with longer uh, acting effects when they enter the body. There is another form of insulin that's out there, which is an inhaled insulin. A little bit more new, as far as that's concerned, and it works through the same mechanism as injectables, but it's taken as an oral inhaler. The only currently approved inhaled insulin in the U.S. is called Afrezza, and this is an ultra rapid acting mealtime insulin. Uh, so a prandial insulin. a freza starts working and finishes working very quickly with its onset of action at about 12 minutes after inhalation, and then it stops acting after about 90 minutes after the inhalation. In contrast with that, you have like the rapid acting uh, analogues here that have like they're on set with about 15 minutes and they can last for up to about four hours. So going back here to the, what are the different types of insulin, however, now let's talk at least a little bit about analogs, about that rapid acting versus long uh, term acting insulins. And those are broken out into basal versus prandial insulins. So the first biosynthetic insulin analog was developed for clinical use at mealtime. Mealtime being when you eat a meal, your body takes in carbohydrates and breaks this stuff, this stuff down, and you start absorbing sugars uh, rapidly into your bloodstream. So you get a spike in your blood sugar uh, there. So the first insulin that was produced here was a prandial insulin or a fast acting insulin something that is used and it is a subcutaneous injection known as Humalog. So Humalog is a prandial insulin or a fast acting insulin. And it takes effect about 15 minutes after the injection. Um, other rapid acting analogs are Novolog. That's another rapid fast acting insulin, which is also known as Novorapid and Apidra. Um, And then we have basal insulin. And basal insulin is designed to be injected once or twice daily. And it provides this low level, constant uh, insulin production, like maybe throughout the night um, or over the course of the day to kind of keep a constant level of insulin present to kind of keep yourself off this roller coaster of activity of spikes and troughs and spikes and troughs. A few examples of basal rate insulin are Levomir, Lantus, Basaglar, and trugeo. A few more interesting things that insulin does inside of the body here, outside of stimulating the uptake of glucose to try to reduce that blood sugar level and increasing your synthesis of fat, um, and the conversion of fat into triglycerides to try to um, uh, reduce that blood sugar level um, it even decreases the amount of fat that's broken down so again this is like shutting down that catabolic function that's trying to increase your blood sugar level so it's inhibitory to that sort of a function here it actually also has uh, some things to do with how even like your blood vessels work. Um, So insulin actually will cause your arterial muscle walls to relax. This is in an effort to increase blood flow, um, especially in like the smaller arteries of your body. And a decrease in insulin reduces uh, this flow by allowing these muscles to contract. Insulin also decreases autophagy, which is your body's ability to degrade and destroy damaged organelles. Insulin also promotes the increased uptake of amino acids into the cell, and it forces the cells to absorb these circulating amino acids. But a decrease in insulin level will actually inhibit those acid absorptions in another way though, and probably most importantly to point out here is that insulin will also increase potassium uptake into cells. Now, in order to better understand this, we have to understand that patients who require insulin therapy, diabetics, they are already severely hampered when it comes to controlling their electrolytes. Diabetes is a disease that one of its primary symptoms is excessive urination. The body sees this hyperglycemic uh, problem, this uh, overabundance of blood sugar, and it attempts to control it by having you urinate over and over and over again and this causes you to leach things like your electrolytes out through your urine that means you're constantly losing uh, that uh, electrolyte level inside of your body and so you know patients who are diabetics they have a, a plethora of electrolyte disorders and they're oftentimes potassium or magnesium or phosphate depleted especially if that patient has uncontrolled diabetes, where they're almost always in some form of a hyperglycemic state. Um, and as they start getting into more of a keto acidotic state, that becomes an even a bigger problem. Even somebody who suffers from the hyperglycemic, hyperosmolar non-ketotic problems, or the HHNK form, it's linked to both hypo and hypernitremia. So that's high and low forms of uh, sodium in the body as well as possible chronic hyperkalemia or almost having too much potassium in the body. They can even have a problem with having too low amounts of potassium in the body. So now we go back to this patient who's taking insulin and that patient has um, a problem now where their blood sugar levels are too high in hospital. One of the most important things to do for that patient is going to be to check their electrolyte levels and check and see if it's safe to give that patient insulin. Because as soon as we give that patient insulin, it is going to now start to draw in potassium back into the cells. And it's going to start causing those electrolytes to switch from the extracellular space to the intracellular space. And that can cause a lot of problems leading up and into like cardiac dysrhythmias in the case of um, a hypokalemic patient. One of the most important things that we can do for a hyperglycemic patient is to try to make sure that their hydration level has returned back to some level of normality. The patient has already been excessively urinating. Their plasma levels are gonna be low. And by giving them some saline or giving them uh, some fluids back, we're going to try to return some of that back to a normal state. And that's also going to affect their electrolyte levels. That's also gonna help to try to bring them back into a normal range. Think of this as kind of like Kool-Aid. You know, if I have a limited amount of water and I add the whole flavor packet of Kool-Aid to that uh, pitcher, I'm gonna have some pretty tart Kool-Aid. However, if I just continually add water to that same pitcher, eventually I'm gonna bland that flavor out. I wanna try to get it right back to that range where it needs to be, that homeostatic range. And diabetes, puts us in a state where we are constantly losing fluid. We're constantly urinating off this excess fluid and our concentration of Kool-Aid is just getting thicker and more tart and more sugary. We wanna try to add some fluid back to that system to try to bring that hydration level back into a normal range. And this is also gonna help to bring their electrolytes back into a normal range. And it's going to help to bring and help kind of even correct even some hyponatremia that might be happening. And it might help to dilute out some of the hyperkalemia. And that needs to happen before a patient is given insulin and have their electrolyte levels checked to make sure that when we give this patient insulin, we're not forcing electrolytes into a place where we're not ready to have them yet. Because remember that those electrolytes, they do all kinds of things inside of our body. One of the chief most things that especially sodium and potassium are responsible for is for cardiac depolarization waves. Uh, We already know that hypokalemia uh, or even hyperkalemia can be associated with cardiac arrhythmias when administering insulin in hospital or in the ICU. This may help to highlight why sometimes controlling diabetes can lead to emergency medical services being called. I know from my own anecdotal history of working with diabetes and working in emergency medical services, um, a relatively common thing that we run into when we're dealing with hypoglycemic patients are patients that are taking these sorts of medications, especially Uh, medications that have rapid onset that reduce a patient's blood sugar level. And a patient who's taking a prandial medication, remember that's gonna be your rapid onset or your ultra fast uh, onset uh, insulin uh, that's meant to act very, very quickly to reduce your blood sugar level by forming glycogen and allowing your body to take up that uh, uh, blood sugar, That means that if that patient takes that rapid onset medication, they need to eat along with it. They need to have something that's helping to bump their blood sugar up, where their body is absorbing these nutrients and trying to raise their blood sugar level, while this insulin is there doing the same thing, trying to lower their blood sugar level. But if I'm a patient who's already struggling with this, Or perhaps I woke up in the morning, I always take my five units of insulin, so I go to the fridge, I take my five units of insulin, but I'm tired. Maybe my kids kept me up all night, or maybe I'm having a bad day. Maybe my bed was just really, really comfortable. Or maybe that patient isn't feeling very good and they go back to sleep. Those patients can have a direct nosedive of their blood sugar level, you know for hours after that might occur which might lead to the patient having onset of a seizure or being altered um maybe a loved one notices them to be having a hypoglycemic sort of an event now we show up and the patient's blood sugar is low we start an iv and we give that patient what d10 right or d50 in some cases we give them a bag of dextrose and they take on that sugar, it improves their blood sugar level, and now that insulin has something to do. It has uh, blood sugar to be able to try to get back into the cells and return to the brain and give that patient back cognitive functionality inside of their body, right? The other side of that coin though, a patient who's struggling with their diabetes to try to remember to take their medication or they don't have access to their medication, potentially these uh their medication was out of the refrigerator or potentially um, it got too hot or too cold and it denatured itself um, and it's not working and they're depending on that to work maybe the patient is not able to give themselves the injections that they might need or they've just kind of maybe even reached a point where they don't care to give themselves their own injections that patient might go the other direction right? Where that patient doesn't have insulin circulating throughout their body. So what do they have? They have a catabolic continuous reaction occurring where their body is just continually mobilizing sugar and shoveling it off into their bloodstream. And they have this continually rising blood sugar level, let alone when they eat causing a, uh, increase in absorption of those nutrients. And now their blood sugar is also high after that point. And without the insulin there, that patient ends up in DKA or that patient ends up in a situation where they become altered. But they became altered because they have high blood sugar levels outside of the cells and low blood sugar levels inside of the cells. The cells aren't using that sugar. The cells aren't actually absorbing those nutrients through their walls. there. They're getting a small amount, but they're not getting the the amount that they actually need. And that patient has excessive urination with that. That can lead to a lot of problems. That patient can have excessive thirst with that. That can lead to a lot of problems. The patient may become altered. That ends up leading to us having an uh, EMS-related 911 call where we end up going and seeing that patient. And it's, once again, kind of related back to their medications, specifically back to this insulin, Um, Another problem that can occur is if a patient mixes up their fast-acting and their long-acting insulins. If perhaps they're just new to this and they're not uh, quite figuring this out um, and they haven't quite uh, nailed down which one is which and which one do they get in the morning and which one do they take at mealtime. Or perhaps this patient is known as a brittle diabetic, someone who Um, on the inside of their pancreas some days they produce mutant insulin and their body can't use it at all and therefore they have to take more of their own insulin analog or maybe more of their human insulin to try to affect their blood sugar level but on other days their pancreas actually remembers what it's supposed to do and produces good usable insulin and their body uses that the same way they normally would however if that patient in particular the brittle diabetic who gets into a routine of not checking their blood sugar level but just taking the same number of units every single day i wake up and i get me my five right well on a day where they're already producing their normal insulin inside of their body and then they give themselves their own injection of insulin when their body already has that insulin production there, they can end up in a nosedive. And all of this ends up affecting EMS, and all of us ends up affecting how we work with patients in the field. But I hope that we've also started to highlight and show why, especially in EMS protocols, we don't give insulin, because there's also the unknown factor of what's going on underneath. Why did that patient end up in a hyperglycemic sort of an event to begin with? Perhaps there is an underlying electrolyte disorder here that has to be corrected before that insulin t- can be given. know what I'm really hoping to show here is how complex it is that this medication is absolutely a life-saving medication but it has to be done deliberately and it has to be done slowly and it has to be done in such a way where we're giving the right type of medication at the right time, right? Even just giving somebody um, the wrong type of insulin can end up becoming a problem here. Giving them the fast acting when we meant to give them their basilar rate insulin, something it's just supposed to help them maintain over the course of the night. And giving them actually the fast-acting insulin when they weren't able to eat or they weren't able to support that can lead to a whole nother host of problems. Now, a lot of times, insulin is also supported by other types of medications, um, specifically medications that are taken orally that helps with like peripheral insulin sensitivity, or uh, maybe even maybe even helps with uh, the body's ability to respond to its own um insulin production or even stimulating the body's own insulin production but that might be medications for another day but some of those medication names at least to start getting them in people's minds are meds like metformin or glucophage um, or meds like gliburide, or glipizide you might see in a diabetic's history also coupled with things like history of diabetes looking for things like novalog or humalog or humalin or true jo um, are going to be some pretty common medications you might see i hope this helps you to have a better understanding of just what insulin is and how it works and maybe even a couple of good resources to look out there if you're interested in learning more the Uh, National Center for Biotechnical Information, the NCBI, has a lot of great articles in regards to diabetes mellitus and their associated electrolyte disorders. Um, There's the American Diabetes Association, which has some great family digestible information about diabetes, about insulin, about risk factors, reducing your own risk factors. Um, of diabetes or just uh, reducing spikes in your own blood sugar levels. There's also another great website called the Diatribe. Um, And Diatribe is another organization that functions with sponsorship and support to help to try to get information out there into the community about diabetes, about insulin, about medications that are used to help control diabetics and help improve their lifestyle overall.
0: Hello everyone, Dustin here and I'm going to talk a little bit about EDP emergencies and schizophrenia today. In EMS we respond to a huge variety of calls. One of those call types is called EDP or emotionally distressed person and ever since the 2020 lockdowns and added stressors came into play we have been seeing an increase in these specific types of calls. EDP calls can be a wild card for first responders Whether it is a mental health issue, drugs, suicidal ideations, or attempts, or sometimes it can be a medical issue that's causing the patient to act in an odd way. We just don't know. Dealing with these certain calls takes a high sense of awareness and attention to details when working with these specific patients. When responding to an EDP call, our first priority is scene safety. Not only for yourself, but for the patient and your partner. When an EDP call gets dispatched, a Salem Police Officer is normally dispatched to the scene as well. EMS and fire will stage near the scene until Salem Police have cleared the scene of any weapons, hazards, or if necessary, has the patient detained so they cannot cause any responders or themselves harm. Once Salem Police Department have the scene secure, they will ask for EMS to respond to the scene so they can begin treatment. There are also times where the information in our CAD notes are very specific and Salem Police Department is not needed and we can respond first onto the scene. But scene safety should always be a priority. A patient can be cooperative at first but changed in an instant. And if you are an OG listener you may remember that I interviewed an employee of ours, Mr. Brad Dees. His quick actions on a call may have saved his partner and other individuals on scene from any harm. They were on a perfect example of an EDP call where the patient was cool, calm, and collected, but during their treatment reached out and grabbed a screwdriver. Nobody saw the patient grab this weapon except for Brad. He disarmed the patient and diffused the situation before anyone was hurt. Individuals with mental health issues need to be constantly evaluated. We do not know what they're thinking certain disorders they can act out violently at random. Establishing a rapport can go a long way with de-escalating. Sometimes it simply is removing them from their current environment, talking in a calm voice, and taking some time to listen to them is all it takes to calm someone down. Other times it can take a little more intervention depending on each situation. Once patient contact is made, the right information early can be the best way for treatment. Getting a medical history and medications can paint us a pretty great picture of what could be happening. Someone with a mental health history like schizophrenia that is going through a period of psychosis could be treated differently than say someone who has a history of drug use and that is acting out due to the drug they ingested. Or if someone attempted suicide because of depression or if they were trying to end the voices screaming in their head. Each call and each individual is different, but let's talk a little bit about schizophrenia. What exactly is schizophrenia? Schizophrenia is a disorder that affects a person's ability to think, feel, and behave clearly. Schizophrenia is translated to split mind, but which is not necessarily the case. This is not a multi-personality illness, but more of a split from reality. There is a wide range of symptoms that is associated with schizophrenia. The ones we typically think of are called positive symptoms. These symptoms that add behavior to the experience, they often present as hallucinations, both visual and audio, delusions, incoherent speech, paranoia, agitation, or even fear. There are also negative symptoms. These subtract things from behaviors such as lack of motivation, the inability to express emotion, disassociation from friends and family, and a loss of interest in things that they were once interested. We also have disorganized symptoms. These present like word salad and the inability to focus on anything. Many of these are related to common mental health symptoms. Most people see this behavior as drug-influenced behavior which can be a big part of it, but in reality, the person could be suffering from something that they have little or no control of and needs help. Scientists estimate about 1% of the world's population has schizophrenia. The first event of psychosis normally presents for males in the late teens and early twenties, and for females in the late twenties and early thirties. Studies show that it has a strong genetic link. A person is 10 times more likely to have the disorder if a parent or sibling has it and a 40-50% to chance if you are a twin with someone who is diagnosed, even if you were raised apart. The best way to treat this disorder is early recognition. The dehumanizing of the disorder can cause people to neglect treatment. They feel shameful or outcasted, in which ways worsen the disorder. If years of symptoms go neglected those symptoms can become embedded into the individual's personality and making it very difficult for the individual to respond to treatments. There are a few videos on YouTube you can look up that simulate what a person with schizophrenia goes through. Back in 2014 CNN news reporter Anderson Cooper does a piece on this experience doing a test simulation. He puts headphones playing some examples of the auditorial voices that someone with schizophrenia would hear on a daily basis and tries to do simple tasks. Multiple times he expresses how difficult it is for him to focus and how sometimes he even wants to talk back to the voices. It brings to light why someone experiencing this might seem distant or withdrawn from society and what about a different setting? Try putting someone suffering from schizophrenia in a different scenario, such as a trauma scene. As EMS providers, we ask a patient that is conscious after a traumatic event tons of questions. It's how we mentally assess someone. But someone who is diagnosed with schizophrenia and expected to answer a barrage of questions might be very difficult. And if I had to guess, could probably lead to agitation. This illustrates the importance of the sample questions we were all taught as EMT Basics. They are simple and straightforward, and with just a few questions, we can adjust and see how we can further question our patient. It may be as simple as giving them more time to answer or repeating the question. Drugs such as marijuana can often worsen positive symptoms. With the rise of popularity of marijuana in the clinical and recreational setting, Studies have shown marijuana for people with or at risk of schizophrenia can often cause worsened symptoms. An article published by Cycle Med in March of 2013, Dr. Wilson and Dr. Nicole state that the adolescent marijuana use is associated with a two-fold increased risk for schizophrenia. Animal studies suggest that the chronic THC administration in adolescent rats leads to enduring cognitive deficits in adulthood, including learning and memory deficits, and abnormalities commonly observed in human schizophrenia patients. Now, the medication that helps treat positive symptoms are known as antipsychotic medications. Many antipsychotic medications prescribed for schizophrenia work to block out the dopamine receptors in the brain Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that plays a role in how we feel pleasure. It's how we develop our likes and dislikes and plays a big role in our own personalities and who we are. Studies shown that with schizophrenia they have an increased dopamine dump through what's called the mesolimbic pathway in the brain and these dopamine dumps is what cause the positive symptoms that we commonly see. So these antipsychotic medications such as olanzapine help regulate these large imbalances and which help controls the positive symptoms that the patient is experiencing. For a 911 call where the patient is already experiencing positive symptoms, our treatments can vary. How we determine what treatment should be used on an EDP issue, we have what's called a RAS score. is an acronym for richmond agitation sedation scale it is a vital sign we use to select what pharmacological sedation procedure we will use with a RAS chart we value the patient's behavior and whatever that score the patient presents with is how we'll proceed to treat the patient the score begins with zero the patient being alert and calm and increases to a plus 1, which is restlessness and anxiousness, but not aggressive. A plus 2 is agitated, frequent non-purposeful movements and increased agitation when touched or moved. A plus 3, very agitated, aggressive verbally and physically, uncooperative towards EMS. And a plus 4, combative, overly combative and violent, immediate danger to EMS. When sedated, it is documented on a negative scale for the level of sedation. A negative one is drowsy and not fully alert. A negative two is a light sedation, briefly awakens with eye contact to voice. A minus three, a moderate sedation, movement or eye opening to voice, but doesn't make eye contact. A minus four is deep sedation, no response to voice, but movement and eye opening to physical stimuli. N minus five, unarousable, no response to voice or physical stimuli. So when giving treatment to an agitated person, the level of sedation can vary as well. Someone with a plus one, we can offer them a olanzapine. It is taken sublingually and the patient must agree to take it themselves. That can bring the patient from a plus one to a zero, or maybe a negative one. But now someone with a plus two score, it must be determined the cause of agitation either being a psychiatric problem or a drug or alcohol induced problem. If determined a psychiatric issue, the sedation drugs administered have a specific order, Haldol and diphenhydramine. If the patient continues to be agitated, we can follow up with Versed. A patient that is a plus three or above is an immediate threat and should administer Versed, Haldol, and then diphenhydramine in that order. And then we can titrate Versed every five minutes to control the agitation as needed. Once the patient is sedated, we must consider and treat any medical causes of combativeness and side effects of the medications, such as hypoxia, hypoglycemia, injuries, and hypotension. I hope this segment sheds some light on understanding EDP and schizophrenia calls, and how we see and treat them in EMS. Schizophrenia, as well as many other mental health issues, continue to be extensively studied and can affect people in a variety of different ways. I hope this piece helped you understand that someone suffering from not only schizophrenia, but any mental disorder is still a human being, and if treated correctly, can have a complete and normal life. Through knowledge and understanding, we can help our community see that mental health issues do not dehumanize you, and seeking treatment does not make you weak, and in fact makes you stronger and should be supported at all costs. Thank you for listening and stay safe.
2: Hello everyone and welcome to this month's special medical topic. My name is Bianca and I will be guiding you through some fun, interesting, and important topics we encounter in medicine. In honor of Valentine's Day this year, I decided to spend some time on cardiology. The goal of this this discussion is to introduce you to that big muscle in the middle of your chest that loves to go lub-dub. We will walk through the basics of your heart and take a dive into the specialized portion that paramedics just love to talk about, heart attacks. We also have a special guest that will be joining us later on today. Without further ado, let's begin. Some could argue that the heart is the most important organ in your body. You could have no brain activity and still be considered, quote, alive. If your heart stops beating, well, then you're not so alive anymore. Of course, there's always exceptions to those rules. Um, I'm looking at you, Elvad. But for the vast majority of people, when your heart stops beating, you're dead. Because it's so important for us to keep that heart beating, it shouldn't be surprising that over 70% of the medications we carry on our ambulances affect the heart in some way. So let's take a look at that heart. The heart can be divided into two sections, mechanical and electrical. If it physically moves, then it's mechanical, and if it has to do with electricity, then it's electrical. Easy, right? First, the mechanical part. You have four chambers in your heart. Two of them are the left and right atrium, and the other two are the left and right ventricles. Between your chambers, you have valves that ensure that the blood does not back up but continues to move forward. These are known as the tricuspid valve, pulmonary valve, mitral valve, and aortic valve. The blood in your heart follows a very specific pathway. If there's any deviations from this pathway, then all sorts of problems arise, including leaky valves, valve failure, or ventricular septal defects. Let's review the pathway of blood through your heart. Deoxygenated blood enters into your right atrium from your vena cava. This blood is then pumped through the tricuspid valve to the right ventricle. This blood, since it's still deoxygenated, needs some oxygen. It accomplishes this by going through the pulmonary valve to the lungs. When the blood's in the lungs, it becomes reoxygenated through our breathing. This oxygen-rich blood then returns from the lungs into your left atrium. This blood is then pumped through your mitral valve and into the left ventricle. Your left ventricle is the strongest muscle group in your heart. It's responsible for pumping the blood out of your heart through the aortic valve and to the rest of your body. That's a lot of strength. You feel that last step every time you feel a pulse. That's your ventricle contracting. Pretty simple, right? You can appreciate how important it is for this process to continue in this linear fashion. When it doesn't go as planned, well, you get some backup problems. So. Now that we have a good reminder of the mechanics of a pulse, let's drive into the electrical portion. Your heart has its own power plant. Each cardiac cell is able to generate its own electrical activity independently. You can think the following four ions for this. Sodium, calcium, potassium, and chloride. The first thing to remember is that sodium and calcium sit outside the cell. When they enter the cell, that gives a positive charge and deflection. Potassium exits the cell and will cause a negative charge and deflection. So, the first part of the action potential is the resting rate, which is called phase zero. The membrane potential sits between minus 85 to minus 95 millivolts. When the sodium channels open, this is called excitation, that causes a positive shift in the membrane potential. This is your R wave and S wave in your EKG. You'll see this as an upward and then downward deflection in your EKG. Next, the calcium channels open. Since calcium is still a positive charge, it doesn't change the voltage much, which means you see a flat line on your EKG. This is your ST segment. When calcium finally slows down, potassium shows up to the party. As potassium channels open, it repolarizes the heart. This will be shown as the T wave on your EKG, and will lower the membrane potential back to its resting levels. So let's take a second to review refractory periods. We have two simple moments during the heart conduction, the absolute refractory period and the relative refractory period. The absolute refractory period is when it's impossible for an action potential to be activated. This is because the sodium channels we we're talking about are inactivated. This is when you have your shift from sodium to calcium. The relative refractory period is when the action potential may be activated if the stimulus is large enough. This is because some of the sodium channels have recovered. However, we also have that flow of potassium at this time. So if the stimulus is large, then the sodium can flow back into the cell, overriding the potassium. This will generate another contraction of the heart. So why do we care? Well, this is important when we're cardioverting our patients. You know you set up those little white hats that sit on top of those, not after, the QRS complex. Then you hold down the shock button and the shock lines up with the top of the QRS complex and hopefully that shock will hit the R wave and cause a cardioversion. When you don't have those little white hats in place on the QRS complex, you may get an Now, there may be a lot of medics right now nodding their heads and going, Yep, medical school taught me an R on T equals v You're right. But what does that mean? If you decide to cardiovert your patient without lining up on the R-wave, which is called defibrillation, by the way, guys, um, this may run you the risk of that electrical current hitting the T-wave. This T-wave is a relative refractory period because that's when potassium is bringing your cells back to their resting voltage. So the large stimulus, like say an external electricity from your monitor, that hits during the relative refractory period on the T wave will cause an R, because of it, the R wave, on T, the T wave, causing that V-fib or a big squiggle line on your monitor. Not only now do you have to defibrillate your patient, but you'll also have to explain to your medical director how you forgot to line up your charge. We don't want that for you. Now, let's follow the electricity in your heart. Even though each cardiac cell fires independently, there is a coordinated effort in place by your heart. You can thank the SA and AV node for this. At the top of your heart, you have a sinoatrial node, or the SA node. It generates an electrical impulse ranging from 60 to 100 beats per minute. This electrical activity goes down the atria. This will then reach the atrioventricular node, or the AV node. Your AV node is the backup plan. If the SA node decides it does not want to work properly, the AV node will take over, kind of like a backup generator. The intrinsic firing rate of the AV node is between 40 to 60 beats per minute. After the electrical pulse travels to the AV node, it will go down the ventricles and split into the left and right bundle branches. From there, their branches will go into a large network of wires called the Purkinje fibers. This then causes the ventricles to contract. If, for some reason, the SA and the AV nodes decide they stop, they don't want to work anymore, then the Purkinje fibers kick in. Their firing rate is between 20 to 40 beats a minute. That's not a really good pulse, and it doesn't really lead to a long lifespan. Oof, that's a lot to cover. So, you may be thinking, well, how do we check to see if the electrical activity in someone's heart is doing the right thing? Well, let me introduce you to the electrocardiogram. In 1924, William Toven won the Nobel Prize for Physiology and his research and creation of the EKG or ECG. Quick side note: ECG is the American version of the electrocardiogram. EKG is the European version because. In German, the cardiogram is spelled with a K. I'm European, so it's EKG for me. So, this EKG monitors the electrical activity of your heart. It makes a tracing, and then allows for real time interpretation of the rhythm. Each electrode acts as an eye, allowing you to visualize different angles of the heart. We have two sections the limb leads and the precordial leads. The limb leads are the right arm, left arm, right leg and left leg. Recorder leads are V1 through V6. Your EKG paper has small and big boxes. The small boxes equal to 0.04 seconds. Five of the small boxes makes a large box. This large box is equal to 0.2 seconds. So five large boxes equals one second. This helps us understand how fast the heart's beating and if each part of the heart is working. Now, let's look at all those bumps and spikes. The waveform and deflection represent contractions of the heart. The first small bump is the P wave. This is generated when the SA node creates an electrical impulse. This causes the atria to contract. The time the impulse travels down to the ventricles is the PR interval. This is between 0.12 to 0.2 two zero seconds. Now here's a little variation between people. Some people have the first deflection that goes downward or negative deflection. This is called a Q wave. This is usually an indication that the person may have had a previous heart attack or myocardial infarction. If the first deflection goes upward, then this is the R wave. This will then be followed by a negative deflection called the S wave. These three components placed together are the QRS complex and indicate the ventricles contracting. Each QRS complex should have a physical pulse associated with it. If it doesn't, it's pulseless electrical activity or PEA. This complex is between 0.08 to 0.10 seconds. Between the S wave and the T wave, there's a flat line. This is called the ST segment. This is a critical part to interpreting an EKG. So let's take a second here and look at it. If this little line is lower than that of the P wave at the start of your complex, then that's called ST depression. This can indicate ischemia. Sometimes this can be because a person doesn't have a lot of oxygenation, which is called hypoxia. Another indication could be reciprocal changes. This means that there could be a part of the heart that's in the process of dying. This can lead to electrical changes in other parts of the heart. If the ST segment is elevated, then this could mean an acute infarct. This means that the person may be having an acute heart attack. We call this a STEMI, or ST elevation myocardial infarction. This is our tall tail sign that a person is having a heart attack. Another problem that may be causing this elevation is STEMI, so STEMI, imposters. These are certain types of electrical rhythms in the heart that will falsely elevate the ST segment. Now, let's go back and look at our AKG. After the ST segment, you'll see one last bump. This is called the T wave. This represents the ventricles repolarizing or filling back up with blood. Because the ventricles are so much larger than that of the atrium, it will have a large bump while the atria repolarizing will get hidden in the complex. Well, now that we have an idea for how the heart works, I'd like to introduce you to someone special to me. His name is Blaze. Blaze Amodi is the program director at Reach Air Medical. He currently works in Roseburg, Oregon, and manages a section of reach. Blaze is also a sergeant in the Oregon Army National Guard. In addition to his many accomplishments in life, Blaze was my field training officer when I first started working here at FALC. He was also the cardiac guru here at the organization in Salem before he continued on to his critical care experience. During his time here at Falk, Blaze gave cardiac and trauma lectures to our employees. He was always the go-to person for anything cardiac related. And I'm excited to introduce you all to him. So let's start off by telling me a little bit about yourself.
4: Yeah, uh, maybe some of the FALC people still know me, but I started in some sort of emergency medicine in 2004. I've gone through multiple disciplines um, since then. I'm a paramedic and nurse, fly uh, on the civilian side. I've also flown and done medicine, both on the ground and critical care, air evacuation for the army as well. And um, yeah, just take a passion, uh, knowing that uh, we're there for the patients and the patients are never there for us. So really trying to distill out and unmask what pieces we can actually sort of change in their clinical outcome Especially seeing medicine change over the last 16, 17 years, even just in my short time, um, realizing that we used to have a really big focus in in paramedicine of just getting them to the hospital is a very short-sighted, like what are the, what are the acute pieces? And and that also, you know, leads to burnout because we're like many of our patients have needs, but they're not necessarily an acute need. And we really want to impact them. We really want to make a difference. And so one of the sort of paradigm shifts for the last 10 years in emergency medicine and transport medicine is what's their full clinical picture? So the second you see them, your goal is, how do I impact their overall holistic health course for the rest of, of their life in this moment? And for some patients, you know, that could be some sort of fancy intervention or acute intervention or medication, take them to the right destination. But for a lot of other patients, and patients that we see regularly where we know their name, you know, or we recognize their address, those patients still have some sort of a need. Um, and instead of being frustrated by those sort of understanding what that need is and how we contribute in, in our pivotal piece. Um, one of the things that's talked about in military medicine is the first provider to lay their hands on a patient dictates their overall outcome. And, that, and that's generally thought about in a trauma setting, because if you if you run a trauma scenario poorly, even if they survive, their outcome might be significantly worse. Um, There might be higher morbidity and mortality, but there might be greater disability or whatever it may be. So uh, often we are the first hands laying on patients and really dictating from start to finish when they get discharged and potentially the rest of their life. And cardiology is kind of one of the the biggest pieces of what we actually do, even though it feels relatively routine and uh, kind of benign.
2: Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your military experience and how that relates to you working as a paramedic as well, or as a nurse now.
4: Sure. Yeah. Uh, I happened to already be a paramedic before entering the military. So I had a slightly different perspective than kind of going through the normal military pipeline of paramedicine, which has a heavy focus on uh, acute insult and injury and clearly much more trauma-based um,
2: Makes sense. world.
4: <clears throat> yeah, totally. Uh, and I even experienced that downrange. Uh, I brought a patient into uh, an ED in another country, and it was, a, it was a patient who had been having cardiac symptoms, sort of ironically for this topic. And I gave them like a full, I gave the provider a full interpretation of the ECG, not just does it meet this sort of black and white binary paradigm of Uh, that's now relatively antiquated of like STEMI or and And she's like, Oh, you, you must also do practice medicine outside of the military, because it wasn't something that uh, is a huge focus there. So kind of how it translated is it is it really, the military lets you uh, seek any opportunity but you really have to drive that change. And we're seeing a lot of that in EMS and and that's always kind of been a function of EMS. Uh, Places that don't have just copious amounts of resources, which is most EMS and fire services, uh, are generally driven. The education and the drive for patient care and the passion um, often comes from the people that are doing the job. It's not necessarily one good manager or leader Uh, sort of rallies the troops. And so seeing how I can actually sort of cater that and impact that uh, within whatever sphere of influence I currently have.
2: So on the topic of cardiology, what really got you into wanting to pursue cardiology or look more into it? Um, For our viewers here, if you're not familiar, um, Blaze used to work here at FELC um, and has since moved on to bigger and greater things. But while he was here- Just
4: different things.
2: (laughs) While he was here, he was known as our cardiac guru. Anything cardiac related, we all ran to blaze and asked questions. Um, He was well-versed and he even taught some cardiac classes here, some education topics um, while he was still working here at Falk. So how did you end up in that spot? How did you end up being the person to go to for anything cardiac? What, What interests you in cardiac?
4: Sure, so the kind of the driving factor is obviously the normal progression of a paramedic as you start out as an EMT. And as an EMT, especially sort of staring down this future of paramedicine, I was asking many of my paramedic colleagues a lot about uh, ECGs and interpretations and outcomes and uh, thrombolytics and cath lab capabilities and what really happens. And I actually wasn't that satisfied with answers from people who are, who are incredible clinicians out in the field, and some of that comes down to the way in which we've approached cardiac, and some of it also just comes down to um, cardiology and electrophysiology patterns uh, in in a time frame. So initially, we, in like 1994, well before my time in uh, transform medicine. Was really when the kind of the last real good randomized control meta-analysis was done for mm. cardiology. So ultimately, even in 2004, when I was starting out as an EMT, the the data around ECGs and 12 leads and cardiac cath versus thrombolytic therapy, not just in e, not, not just in EMS, but overall as a discipline was was relatively lacking, um, and So we don't necessarily have access to anything in the transport setting to really do a deep dive into some of that and we have to rely on hospital outcomes, we have to rely on hospitals to do studies, we have to rely on you know places to really produce that data and help drive our care. So then I got into paramedic school and again I was a little bit dissatisfied with the approach um, they do a great job of teaching you rhythms and rhythm interpretation, and then sort of the, the basic uh, relatively old paradigm of STEMI and STEMI. Right. And, and beyond that, uh, and kind of the, the production of technology where you could put something into the computer and say, hey, if it meets these criteria, give this printout. Mm-hmm. Well, the, I mean, it's been well known that those criteria are not sensitive and specific. So uh, at least not in the way that we would want to treat our family members, our community, our patients, our colleagues. So doing a little bit deeper dive, I started kind of figuring out, okay. So, and I, I was initially using the term, uh, like imposters, mimickers, things like that. And most of that's been now kind of redacted from the literature because it either is or is not ST elevation MI. But ultimately the thing that we care about, we don't really care about, is it ST elevation? Is it non ST elevation? We care about, do they need intervention Mm -hmm. or do they not need intervention? Can their intervention be delayed? And there's copious amounts of uh, literature that basically show that even using, and now it's, I don't know, 17 years old or 16 years old, the, the most recent criteria are not sensitive and specific in that if you have 100 patients that present with chest pain uh, or present with a STEMI on an ECG okay under the current uh, sort of McFarland criteria 25 of those will go to cath and not have an occlusion Interesting. meaning you've you subjected 25% of that population to all the complications of a cath lab procedure. And you've depleted that cath lab resource, especially if you only have one cath team or limited cath teams. Um, Because then they're going to have to do the non-emergent cath the next day and they're either going to be, you know, tired, behind, whatever it's going to be. And it's sort of compounded by if you have multiple facilities and you're choosing, do I take this patient to a cath-capable facility or do I take them to you know a non-cath cable facility and then if they do have a non-occlusion cardiac event then they could get thrombolytics or whatever um, which that's an entirely different topic but so we, we really care about this occlusion versus non-occlusion and not really the, the STEMI part because even though we sent 25 to the cath lab we also missed 25 more occlusions that didn't meet the current criteria mm-hmm. so out of 100 STEMI ECGs We're serving 75 of them by giving them their emergent cath and 50 patients are receiving harm. The 25 that we sent to cath that didn't need it and then the 25 occlusions that we missed. So I was like, there has to be more to this story. You know, like nobody, if I got grades like that, nobody would be happy with that, right? You know, (laughs) if- You
2: would flunk out of paramedic school.
4: (laughs) Yeah, so- I was like, there there has to be more to this. And so really probably 2009, 2010 is when I kind of started doing my own reading and research and really finding other people who had been doing the same. Um, And then that was compounded by following up on cases that I brought in. Cases that I either determined were a STEMI or that I determined had ACS symptoms, ECG changes, but didn't quite meet the criteria. And even in sort of my like empirical findings, I found like, oh, what we're currently doing is not serving the patients. It's not, it's not the outcomes that we want. And ultimately when we show up to the job, it our goal is to do everything possible to help people and minimize harm and whether that's acute harm or long-term harm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of where I started and it's, uh, over the past 10 years, it's been interesting watching emergency medicine as a, as a discipline, especially in hospitals, really embody changing the paradigm of how we approach cardiac uh, complications, issues, ECG changes. And technology is even making that uh, better in that we're, we're starting to program monitors slightly differently with complex algorithms to help us determine um, sort of occlusion patterns. Uh, In addition, there's a lot more bedside ultrasound looking for abnormal wall motion, uh, because realistically, like, it'd be great if we could just do quick bedside echo on everybody, but that's not going to happen as as a paramedic, at least not currently. So figuring out with the tools we have, how do we increase the sensitivity and specificity to really target more patients? And you just
2: continue on from there. That's That's quite the inspiration. Uh, That's a really great pathway to see you just advance and hungry for more information. And that your knowledge that you have on cardiology and that you continue to accumulate over time, you're, you're willing to share it with others, which is beautiful. And you have a way of explaining it to other people that makes it easy for us to interpret because your background and your knowledge of cardiology may be different from somebody who's brand new, a brand new paramedic who learned the basics, got that two-week course of cardiology in paramedic school and was tossed out into the field. And now they're just starting to actually learn what cardiology is. And you have this amazing way of being able to break it back down and explain it in details. And I know you did that with me when you were training me. You sat me down and We went through the Scarbosa criteria together and we went through um, STEMI, not STEMIs and what to look for. So for our new paramedics or our EMTs who are learning and are thinking about going to paramedic school, so they're starting to brush up on these topics, what kind of advice or kind of guidance you would would you give them?
4: Sure. Yeah, not just for new people. I mean, for everybody. And I, I didn't invent any of this, so oh. sharing, sharing it is just, it is sort of an extension of things that have been shared with me, sort of as a collaborative effort uh, in, in the medical world. Um, the The monitor that we have on an ambulance is one of the most expensive tools that we have. And sure, it can take up blood pressure and do some other things, but we could easily do all that stuff for significantly cheaper. So the one thing that it really truly provides us is the 12 lead, because even the four lead is relatively worthless in that if you assess somebody's pulse and it's between 60 and 110, you ultimately don't care what rhythm they're in because it's probably a perfusing rhythm. Right? It could be a rhythm that you couldn't even interpret with all sorts of strange ectopy and weird complexes. But if it's perfusing and you can feel that pulse, like then that, it's the, the four lead. Yeah, if it's <laughs> below that, then you provide them either medical or electrical therapy. And if it's above that, you know, similar things, but you don't need the four lead to necessarily differentiate all of that. Yeah. So really that, you know, 30 to $60,000 piece of equipment, depending on what model uh, you have, mainly provides you the 12-loop capabilities. So that, in conjunction with the fact that we run so many cardiac calls, coronary artery disease is, is like such a significant uh, problem, especially in the American communities. It, it's really our job to learn as much as we can. And nobody is going to know everything, obviously. Uh, I don't. No paramedic is going to have the same reps as as a true cardiologist. And, and, you know, we have other resources, right? Even the ED physicians aren't going to be ECG experts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're going to have additional things like high sensitive troponins now. They're going to have other electrolyte labs. Mm-hmm. They're going to have that all at their fingertips. And they're going to have a phone where they can call and consult a cardiologist. In addition to being able to look at old ECGs, oftentimes. Yep. So ultimately, we are in a situation where we have to be ECG experts outside of the cardiologist in the hospital because we have fewer tools. So the one tool we have, we have to maximize its capabilities, which really means how do we, how do we differentiate and really kind of distill down into all of the patients that need intervention now and really pass along that information a big portion of what we do is gather information and alert the hospital
0: Mm
4: -hmm. right and that's not just for cardiology like alerting them of meds the scene the damage to a vehicle whatever it is so as when it comes to the, the any sort of cardiac call the the best we can advocate for our patients is only done when we can really read the ecg so there's been a big a big shift in um not necessarily determining is this a STEMI and STEMI or not even cardiac at all but really is this an occlusion or not occlusion if it's not occlusion so what they'll get labs they'll figure it out you know maybe they are having some sort of cardiac event but it doesn't need emergent intervention um but if it's an occlusion advocating for our patients so that sort of the best advice moving forward and it's not going to happen in paramedic school so it's going to be on each organization each paramedic each each provider. One, you have to get the 12 lead. Uh, <laughs> there are plenty of calls where I, and there's numerous factors of why it doesn't happen. Um, maybe, maybe it was lower on your index of suspicion. Maybe it's a patient that you have seen multiple times or their complaints been the same for two weeks, three weeks, five weeks, a month, years, whatever. Right. So, we have to get it, it's, it's cheap, right? It's just some electrodes, we already have you know, bought into the monitor. And then continued practice and quality improvement. And so by that, even if you're good at reading ECGs, if you don't do it regularly, um, you, it's sort of a perishable skill, you, you become slower, you don't pick up on some of the nuances that indicate occlusions. Um, or, or give you a, a high suspicion for occlusion. So we really have to do it routinely. Um, have to go through ECGs and just routinely practice reading them. And then when it comes to the QI process, really hold each other accountable and be humble and open to feedback. Um, get a lot of different eyes on, get a lot of brain power on, um, and follow up with your patients when you go to the hospital. Uh, And you're like, wow, they're still having ACS symptoms. They don't fit the STEMI criteria. Uh, But the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association have a bunch of different guidelines that say this would be an immediate intervention. And we only focus on one. Right. So um, really, we have to understand all of those other reasons that you would need an immediate cath. And that's not something we could just sit down and talk about in this one podcast. Yeah. Um, That's something that's gonna be on every person. And even just just showing you slides and talking about it, like it takes significant practice, like understanding how the QT interval plays in, how everything is in relationship to each other. So even if they have 0.5 millimeters of ST elevation, but their QRS complex is only one millimeter, that's actually really significant elevation in comparison. So everything in the ECG, is all related to each other. Understanding that um, each lead, obviously where it fits on the hexaxial reference plane, but that if it's perpendicular to the mean electrical axis, it's gonna be very small amplitude. So, very small changes in the QRS could really be indicative of something significant. Understanding the pathology of how you get ST elevation to begin with. Maybe this patient will be a STEMI patient and fit the relatively old paradigm for that but they're not there yet or they were there and it's actually starting to settle out so how do you determine that that's in the direction they're going so really interesting hyperacute t waves t wave inversion which leads really indicate something is is not only happening or did happen um but sort of the progression of how that's going to go in conjunction with the story that that you're getting in the field so Ultimately, practice takes practice. Lots of practice. Do your own. Do your own research regularly. Mm-hmm. Don't just rely on some sort of a clinical team or an FTO or a clinical manager to just spoon feed you all of the information because it, it's impossible. It's not going to happen that way. Even if they have it, it's not going to happen that way. Figuring out where we are as an industry and how we interpret ECGs. Um, and then do follow-up. So that's CQI talk to the person who's CQIing your charts, you know, look at 12 leads with the other colleagues. Um, and, and all of those things will really sort of set you up on a path where you end up wanting to know more and you, you start doing your own dive and you start getting much faster at it. You know, when you first start looking across those things, it takes you several minutes when, when really at the end of it, you could, in ten seconds, fifteen seconds, look at the axis, look at the R wave progression, look at the QT interval, look at the relationship of the ST segment to the overall amplitude of the complexes. So, takes practice, takes being humble, and it takes a good like CQI and peer process.
2: Um, let's say you've got a patient and they're complaining about some um, chest pain of some variety. What are some? ways that you ask questions to start going down that flow chart of, Oh, this is more of a respiratory type of chest pain call, or this is very much a cardiac call. What are some keywords, factors, what's something that clicks in your brain and immediately makes you think, I need a 12 lead immediately on this person versus, Oh, I can wait a couple minutes and get a couple other things done.
4: If you have the resources, getting the 12 lead done as soon as possible while you're asking those questions, Is ultimately going to be your best course because you might not be able to differentiate it in the first five, 10, 15 questions. You might still be sort of figuring out because a lot of these patients do have respiratory component uh, problems as well. So, you know, is their COPD slightly exacerbated right now? Because of some sort of like slight acute event, um, and even if it's not a full occlusion, if it's insufficiency, if it's ninety percent insufficiency, and they're getting some vasoconstriction or whatever it may be because they bumped up their oxygen or they changed their meds or whatever, you might not be able to really get that, you know, down to the sort of the bottom of it. And there's there's plenty of calls where we've all experienced like. You know, you ask all these questions, you're still like, all right, I'm leaning towards this. And then by the end of the call, you finally get to a question that really kind of helps you figure it out. So getting, getting hemodynamics and a 12 lead, while you're asking the questions, um, ultimately is going to help steer that direction because you might end up starting to go down the respiratory pathway, especially if you ask a question and you get an answer that indicates that, but it might not be the full story. Mm-hmm. So uh, getting that early on can then help you really still maintain that focus on on the cardiac component, even though there is still a respiratory component. So it's something that um, I've also experienced where you don't get the 12 lead done immediately. Um, and some patients don't actually end up having that long of useful consciousness. So. Uh, just empirically. I, I generally try not to tell stories. We all have plenty of stories, but just there there are plenty of cases where there's like a transient uh, SE segment changes or whatever it may be. Um, but I had a case where I responded. It was a patient complaining of difficulty breathing. Wife who had COPD put her oxygen on the patient. He's very restless. He's moving around a lot. He's like, I can't breathe. Talking in full sentences. So
2: okay,
4: I'm like, okay. and he he was uh older and quite overweight morbidly obese mm-hmm. didn't look like the picture of health i mean looked like it could be any number of things and so we started immediately getting his vitals and trying to do a 12 lead and he ripped the leads off we never got the 12. Oh. Lead. he rips the leads off because he's like i can't breathe and you gotta help me
2: oh huh.
4: so i'm like okay let, let's try to calm him down because he's just acting anxious his blood pressure was fine his heart rate was slightly elevated, slightly tachycardic, but nothing incredibly abnormal. And um, his oxygen saturation was fine. So I'm like, this has got to be cardiac in nature. Um, I was like, let's sit you down on the cot, get you to the ambulance. It was a very short distance. Get in the ambulance and then have my partner start to try to do the 12 lit again, hoping that he's calming down because he sees we're doing something. Um, and he immediately went into cardiac arrest. Oh! So. The the delays for some of these patients, just like a delay for an end STEMI that has an occlusion, they Mm -hmm. can't wait one hour, two hours, five hours of the next day if they truly have an occlusion, um, even if they don't meet that criteria. So the sooner that you can get the 12 lead while you're asking questions, um, the better, because. Patients are focused on their pain, they're focused on you, they're focused on, you know, demographics, they're focused on all sorts of different things. So if you can, if you can do that, while talking while getting vitals, um, you know, as part of a team, that would be the ideal scenario.
2: Alright. Um, looks like we're hitting about the end of our time. Um, do you have any parting words for all of us or um, it, was, it was good seeing you it's great always seeing you blaze you are an, an amazing employee here and you really are missed all the time
4: I definitely miss uh, I miss the people there it's a it's a great community to serve in and uh, yes just be humble about it really really do your own work um, and then collectively if everyone's doing their own work it'll elevate everybody's everybody's uh, game when it comes to sort of cardiology and transport medicine. Um, And then, you know, reach out and connect with other, other communities that are really doing the same. Um, Yeah, like I said, you know, we're there for the patients, they're not there for us.
2: Well, thank you, Lays, for joining us today. Um, I hope you have a fantastic day Um, and don't get snowed in either.
4: Yeah, be safe out there. (laughs) Definitely, thanks for having me.
2: Thank you, Blaze. you have a good day. Take care. If you have any questions about cardiology or want to get into any specifics, come on over here, come chat with us. Uh, We have all our FTOs available. Some of our medics are very well-versed in cardiology. You can always hit up the medical director, our Dr. Clothier, and you can also do your own research too. Cardiology is kind of the bread and butter of paramedicine a lot of our calls have to do with cardiology in some variety some sort of heart issue so look at materials do your own research ask questions that's the only way you're gonna learn just like blaze said read those ekgs get better at it get those fine little details that a lot of people miss is your patient looking like they're having a STEMI? do they look pale do they They look cool, diaphoretic. Do you look at them and go, ooh, yeah, you might be having a cardiac issue? Then treat it that way. Look at your 12 leads. Is there ST elevation? Is there ST depression? Is there T wave inversion? These are all indications and signs that your patient may be having an acute cardiac event. Learn how to do a posterior 12 lead. Improve your medicine. Well, thank you guys for joining me today. I'm looking forward to talking to you guys later on in the future. Otherwise, enjoy your February, and I can't wait to talk to you guys again in March.
1: For this next topic, I wanted to take some time to talk about resiliency and EMS. If you've been around for any period of time that you might have already started to learn about this, EMS academies, are now starting to teach resiliency as part of their curriculum. And these skills are incredibly important. There are lots of resources out there that also discuss this topic, and they really have to focus on physical health, mental health, and emotional health, and how each of those things are related. These topics of physical, mental, and emotional health, each of them are like Uh, three legs on a table. Each one of them is supporting the other, and each one of them needs the other for the table to actually function. If you were to remove one of those legs or weaken one of those legs, the other legs have to take on the burden. And now the table becomes inherently unbalanced and can tip over. Being unbalanced, that's an interesting way to look at the topic of resiliency. And it really resonates with me personally, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to decide if I personally am balanced or not. Do I have the right number of hours coming up in order to be able to invest my money the way that I need to? Am I spending too much time doing an activity or not enough time mowing the grass, you know, that sort of thing. And I really struggle with this. I don't know if others happen to, but I really struggle with this idea of whether or not I am balanced or not. For example, on one hand, I feel a deep responsibility to my family to bring home money for them to thrive so that we can have a home and invest in our children's futures and pay for preschool and, and have vehicles that run and buy groceries and do those sorts of things uh, to help support my family be successful but this requires me to be away from home. Like any job, I have to be at work. And in this particular job, I'm gonna take a lot of risks, you know, let alone even in the time of COVID and potentially bringing that sickness home to my family. I have to leave them and go and take those risks. And if I do this too much, I will become unbalanced. Even though the goal may be admirable of going to work and serving the community and helping those in need and doing those sorts of things. If I do that, I'm going to earn money. I'm going to bring that home to my family and in turn, they're going to thrive. But I'm also not there. I'm not with them. I'm not connecting with them in those moments, you know, inversely, if I spend too much time at home and I don't work my shifts when I'm assigned, you know, perhaps maybe I see more of a benefit of staying at home and being with my kids and my family and investing my time with them, well we're also going to need to find a way to make that lifestyle work because there are resources that I need to be able to bring them or offer them so that they can sustain that lifestyle or we need to change it. You know in either direction too much of one or the other and I would become unbalanced in that scenario and that's influenced by time of the year and know the holiday season or you know perhaps it's time to take that family vacation or something like that and really i'm talking about trying to find that sweet spot between balancing my work schedule my home schedule money bedtime stories um, you know time at the grocery store time recertifying and you know my responsibilities here at work are in some cases really really important as well you know, investing in my fellow employees or educating, um, getting out there on the car and working calls and trying to go out there and to you know, better my craft and becoming a better paramedic. And then you even look at the time kind of even between all of that, looking for time to get proper amounts of rest or investing in my physical well-being by maybe exercising and getting out of the house. Um, and then you start thinking, well, yeah, all of those things are important, too. How do you invest in your mental health? Are you giving yourself enough of a mental health break? Or are you even spending enough time filing yourself down and learning about your craft, learning about paramedicine, learning about EMS, taking those recertification courses and not just assuming that you know what's going on here. And I really hope that this starts to add some perspective to how many balls are up in the air that we all keep juggling every single day. And if you're listening to my voice right now, either driving in your car or at home or potentially sitting in the front seat of an ambulance as you're listening to this, odds are you're probably thinking about your own life in comparison to mine, about your own responsibilities and weighing and measuring your own axis. Are you unbalanced? Are you balanced? What kind of things do you do that allows you to maintain that balance? What kind of things do you add to the mix that helps you cope When you are unbalanced you know this is a constant struggle for anyone outside of even being a first responder but that's where i have the most experience in my lifetime so that's the example that i have to give here you know is when we look at this how do we balance that struggle and it's that balance for me that is the hardest and when i became unbalanced and i started looking at ways that i was coping and how i wasn't realizing the risks or the price tag that I was putting on some of those mechanisms that I was using to cope. Nowadays, you know, all of those same struggles are all still there in EMS, but now we add COVID to the mix and things really pile up fast. I mean, even before COVID, it piled up fast, you know, but now those de-stressors, our ability to be able to cope or the mechanisms that we might have used before may not even be available to us here right now. Being with friends, being with family, being with perhaps an elder who used to give you such perspective on your life and you can't be with them, you know? Or even being able to just go to the gym or go to a rock concert because that's where you really are able to finally just let loose and be yourself and enjoy the music and connect with that moment and de-stress, all of those coping mechanisms are gone. So what has now supplanted that? Is it something that's healthy or potentially is it something that's unhealthy? And I think now more than ever, we need to talk about this balance and we need to talk about resiliency and we need to talk about coping mechanisms and we need to make these sorts of things commonplace. We need to eliminate the stigma that prevents people from admitting that they have these issues and asking for help, you know? And as first responders, we're usually the last people who feel okay with admitting when we have a problem and asking for help. So resilience is the ability to cope with stress and adversity without suffering lasting physical or physiological harm. You know, resiliency is not an armor that you wear that never allows you to feel pain or to not get injured or to not connect with these emotional traumas or connect with these awful things that we often see on our daily lives. It is our ability to cope with them and to cope with the stress and to cope with that pain and connect with it in such a way that allows you to bounce back and not suffer long lasting physiological or physical harm from those stressors, from that trauma. You know, and resiliency, it's also not a pill that you take. It's not a drink that you drink. It's not something that you go into your closet and you make sure that you put on underneath your uniform. You know, resiliency is a set of behaviors and attitudes and social support systems that you can adopt and that you can cultivate and that you can practice. But what I really hope that you hear when I say those things is that resiliency is an action. It is something that requires you to take an action and it requires you to make a stand or to take a stance or to develop those sorts of practices. It's not something that happens overnight. To better understand how this looks, we need to be able to take a moment and reflect on your situation. It is super important for everyone to understand that change cannot take place overnight. Even minor changes take time to become habits. And I don't know of a single person who doesn't wish some sort of change in their life. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe they're just hoping for something to come down the line, that next thing that they've been you know, looking forward to. You know, just getting from one point to another can be very difficult. And finding the right support that works for you can be equally as challenging when you're trying to make those changes. You know, and a lot of agencies talk about resilience and a lot of folks talk about their coping mechanisms. And in some cases, they're talking about that in a negative way or they are cluing you in to perhaps an unhealthy coping mechanism. how many times have you heard a coworker say, I'm struggling to be here right now, man, you know, or they're talking about their late night last night that they decided to stay up all night before their shift, or they were talking about the bender that they went on last weekend and how they got so wasted. How many times have you said to yourself, sitting in your car before coming on shift, man, I should have done that last night. Or, I really should try to get more sleep before I come to work. Uh, Maybe you should spend more time, you know, buying healthier food. And you start thinking back to your first day as an EMT or first day as a medic, first day as a firefighter working on your rig. You know, odds are you were nervous, but you were also excited. And it was that excitement that carried you through that day. You probably didn't sit in your car and say, wow, I am struggling to be here right now. What the heck am I doing? or is it too late to call in sick? Or, you know, trying to give yourself, sitting there just giving yourself the pep talk that it's gonna be okay. And in both of these scenarios, you know, what I'm really trying to point out are the outliers of what could be there. We all fall on that spectrum at some level, and it probably even waxes and wanes every single day. Both of these outlying scenarios both the brand new EMT or medic who skips all the way to work and can you know sustain through anything and do anything all day long because that excitement and that newness is all still there, you know, that's not sustainable. And same thing on the other side. Struggling to come to work or struggling to be in the moment with your patient, you know, that is also not sustainable. And it's those two outliers on the spectrum that I want everybody to understand as we start talking about resiliency. So sometimes we are motivated enough to be anywhere and do almost anything for a short period of time. But after a while, we can swing to the other side of the spectrum. We can become eroded, disintegrated, or apathetic, or worse yet, we can even become frustrated. You know, And in both of these scenarios, this is gonna reflect, or it's also going to color what comes out during your patient care how much energy you're willing to pass along in that patient care scenario. It's going to affect how you think about patients and how you connect with their own struggles and their own fears. It influences how you emotionally support that patient in their time of need. And if you're already struggling, feeling eroded, disintegrated, or apathetic, if you're frustrated even before you're coming to work, That's all gonna spill out in front of your patient. And it's gonna come out in ways that you don't intend. And if you don't think that those emotions do spill out into patient care, if you think that you can just wear a mask every day, you're wrong. People see right through that mask. A lot of communication is nonverbal. It is physical communication. They may hear your words but now they listen to your tone of voice. They see it in your eyes. They can see it in your face. I think candy would even probably even say that they can see it in your charting. You read a chart on a day when you were frustrated, when you were eroded, when you were disintegrated, when you were overworked, right? Your charts are gonna look different than the day that you were plugged in, you were on the money, you were interested in the call and you were connected with what was going on around you, let alone the physiologic side effects of being able to remember details or remember um, additional processes that should occur or your ability to slow yourself down in a situation and hit the brakes a little bit and remove yourself from the emergency and think about the long-term effects of what it is that you're about to do. When you're frustrated, When you're full of stress, when you're full of adrenaline and epinephrine that's not even being generated by the patient, that patient now becomes even more complicated and it becomes even more of a chore to take that extra time and that extra uh, mind space away from what's already going on around you. And that's not fair, not to the patients, not to the people who depend on us. And it's also not fair to you as well. This really kind of brings me to my point. You know we're working in a job where we are the helper we are the rescuer you know we pick up the broken pieces of everyone around us you know this can make you forget to pick up your own broken pieces though it can make you forget to take care of yourself because you're too busy taking care of everyone else and I know this because I've been there I've been on both ends of the spectrum on um, there's been days when I have felt bulletproof and untouchable where my motivation knows no bounds, And then there are other days where I spend time giving myself the pep talk in the mirror, telling myself that all I need to do is survive this shift and then I can come back home. It's just 12 more hours. It's just 24 more hours. It's just 48 more hours. Does this sound familiar at all to you? EMS is a life-saving job, and it's a job that involves the most emotional, awful, amazing, painful, Brutally honest, wonderful, and yet sickening, fast paced and boring at the same time, middle of the night, 24 hours a day, never ending, frequent flyer, hours of tedium interrupted by moments of sheer terror, tears of joy, tears of suffering. You know, it's the creation of life, it's the finality of death, it's suffering. It's the patient that reminds you of a family member or it's the patient that literally said things to you that you will never forget. You know, it is a job of raw human connection. And this can make us feel mortal. And this can make us feel exuberant. And this can make us feel awful all in the same day. You know, and what really brings to the surface, at least for me, is that we don't really talk about this. This is just a side effect of the job. It's expected in the career of EMS. But that doesn't necessarily make it something that we need to forget about. You know, we don't speak about these things in a way that allows us to say, you know what, I'm not okay with this. Because that might mean that you're indicating to other people that, you know, perhaps you shouldn't be here or perhaps you shouldn't be in this career. That's not the case. But there's been a social stigma around that for a long time. This idea that you should just be okay with this sort of suffering. That's what you signed up for, isn't it? You know, we're expected to press on, to clear the call, because you know what? There's another one pending and waiting for your rig. The system is blowing up and it's stressed out. We're, you know, mutual aid is already running rampant here. We need you to clear to get back in service because we've got somebody else that needs saving you know, and you're still trying to pick up the pieces from the last call to some degree, that support network, it has to be there for cities. It has to be there for the social environment that we have. It's the calling that is EMS. And it's also very motivating. It's also something that takes a heavy toll on us because what it really means is, is that if we can't cope or connect with these emotional stressors in the moment and look at them. For what they are and connect with them for what they are means our body is going to shove this off. And it's going to be something that's going to become that's going to show up in another moment when we least expect it. You know, and how are we expected to survive this? Really, how could anyone, when you put it out there in these sorts of terms like this? It's because we're really good at pushing things like this under the rug or becoming so isolated and steely on our outer exteriors that we, doesn't actually penetrate through in the moment. This field about resiliency is really very well studied and there are resources out there in abundance. I mean, heck, if you Google search resiliency and EMS, you know, just one time, you'll find thousands of articles. You'll find standard operating procedures and standard operating guidelines from all the major departments and all the minor departments. There's employee assistance programs, there's videos, there's paid services and free ones that you can become uh, members to. You know, and odds are your own agency even has an EAP program with resources for you to tap into and help you out when you're struggling. So why don't we? Why don't we sit down and prioritize a moment each day to try to fix ourselves, or to connect with these traumas, or to think about the things that we go through on a daily basis? You know, and the answer that I have to come to you in my own life, you know, when I was struggling with this sort of thing about why didn't I take the time to do this before I got into a rut? The answer was really in a lot of ways, I didn't know that I was injured. I didn't take the time to self-reflect. And I didn't know that I was actually suffering on the inside. I was too busy compensating. In all reality, I was turning to alcohol. Alcohol was my crutch. I turned to it heavily. I spent a lot of time with my friends partying. It wasn't until after having a few bad nights and reaching out to some of these resources that I was able to finally be brave enough to self-reflect and realize what I was doing and connect with the why I was doing that as well. You know, I began to learn a lot about how I am a great, and I mean, I'm an exceptional compensator. I could reason my way into anything. I could justify just about anything. I could rationalize why I was doing something. And I could do this all day long. But after taking a step back and looking at what I was doing, I realized how I was compensating for my emotional faults and for my own mental health. In a lot of ways, in my own lack of understanding about why I was coping and looking for a way to numb myself out and to not connect with some of those things that were haunting me to that day. You know, and I look back on that in a lot of ways. At that time, I thought I was balanced. I was spending time out with my friends and kicking back and decompressing. And I was doing it in a way that I thought that I was actively sloughing off the things that I needed to after a long work week. You know, and making the plans that I needed to do in order to be able to, you know, connect with that. And at the same time, that I was doing this, I was actively sacrificing my health to buy myself another day in my emotional and my mental health deficits. Does this sound familiar to you at all? No. Maybe not. You know, this is a personal story of mine. You know, and I, but I am willing to bet though that there's a lot of you out there that have been an EMS or fire or police or dispatch or social services some sort of a now first responder that are out there in the community And if you've been doing this for more than a few years you probably resonate to some level about what I'm talking about you might even be doing some of the things that I did right now as we speak but this talk is about resiliency so what does that really mean first off What I really want you guys to know is that it means that you are already an amazing person for doing what you do every single day. All the things that I've been talking about and pointing out, the things that we go through together, from the dispatcher who takes the call, the first responders who get there unseen and stabilize these patients, transporting them to the hospital, these are really, truly amazing things that occur every single day and you are amazing people for doing that and performing those tasks. Now if you're an EMS, look at what you do as that profession and don't undersell it. You respond to the worst possible places in the worst possible conditions with limited resources and you make life-or-death decisions with limited information. You are incredible for doing that and don't undersell that to yourself. What you do cannot be done by everybody. It is a calling and it is absolutely necessary. The first step in resiliency is recognizing what your true value is, who that value affects, and how that value adds to the betterment of the world around you. And then you start realizing that we need you here. With us and we need you to take the time to care for yourself because if you can't do this job then who will the people around you that depend upon your value need you to show up to work in a balanced way ready to help them pick up their own pieces and put them back together again and you cannot do that if you're neglecting your own injury if you're neglecting your own self-worth. And taking the time to help glue yourself back together or think about yourself and help yourself heal and give yourself the time to heal should not be a social stigma of weakness or a sign that you shouldn't be doing this job. Taking the time to put yourself back together again should be celebrated and it should be something that more of us should be doing on a daily basis. this can be a very hard reality check and a very hard truth to see. You know, resiliency is an action. It is actively investing in yourself, in your well-being so that you can continue in turn to invest those skills and your time in others. You know, go back to the articles now and these videos that are out there for people to watch and the support systems that are there. They literally cannot do anything for you unless you actually look at them. Reach out to them, bring them home and open the pages and read the sentences and listen to their advice. And then take the next brave step to reflect on yourself and see where you are in this time frame. Find out where you might be injured. See where you are coming apart at the threads and at the seams. And then take the time to find the tools to help sew yourself back together and give yourself a chance to heal in my own journey i sought out a counselor that just happened to be the right choice for me and his approach was in teaching me how to meditate you know it was again something that i was able to actively do and something that resonated okay with me that this might be a way for me to delve into my own thought processes and to allow myself a chance to allow some of these emotions to bubble through to, through the surface by being more mindful. And the study of mindfulness is probably something for an entirely different lecture. However, through meditation, I was able to start that process. I started per- turning the pages of the books that I was assigned to take home and reflecting on what I was learning. And honestly, in that moment, I can say that I didn't like what I was seeing in my own reflection. It was really hard. To understand how I had been coming apart at the seams and neglecting that part of me. And it prompted me to change. It helped me to evolve and to become something different. And it led to more healthy changes in my diet and in my own personal choices, in my habits, and to understand on a much better level how to use the tools to cope with the stressors that I was having. It also even helped me to prevent them from really impacting me as deeply as they did, you know, in the future. Another interesting thing is that it also helped me to recognize when other people were also compensating around me, when they were also falling back on their own coping mechanisms. It was kind of like some wool was pulled back from over my eyes. And I started to see EMS specifically, in a much different light. You know, over time I've made progress towards this goal, but I'm definitely not there yet. And I still struggle and I still regress and I still take a few hard steps back. And I go back to those coping mechanisms and I start that process over again. And I'm still on that path and it's been hard. I mean, wow, it's been really hard, but I really want to drive home that point that at no point is there a magic pill that can just make all the stress and EMS go away. And at no point is there a magic remedy that really exists that makes you into this super responder that can take it all without, you know, any of the negative side effects and you know, nothing gets through to me and nothing takes a toll out on me. You know, that really doesn't exist. You know, at no point is there a secret shortcut that takes you to the other side of your traumas. You know there are support networks out there that can talk to you about these things and they can help you set the goals and they can help you learn about yourself and about your behaviors but it's going to be you that's going to have to take those steps and it's going to be you who's going to have to turn those pages and take a look in the mirror and do some self-reflection in order to even start the process of resiliency now there are some amazing tools out there though that can help you to start to turn those pages, and it can help you start to do this in a slow process, bit by bit, to encourage you and motivate you to take some of these steps. You know, one such tool uh, was recently sent to me by Dr. Clovier is a website called You Responder Strong, and the website is https colon backslash backslash you.responderstrong.org. This website is free and it's confidential. And the service combines resources, counseling, coaching, self checks and awareness uh, surveys. And uh, you can even set goals and reminders all in this one space. They offer resiliency training and awareness courses. They offer financial training and coaching and advice about how to plan for your financial future. They offer fitness advice and suggestions on how to reach your own fitness goals. And they also support you as you set these goals and track them. And as you're succeeding with these, you can see yourself moving forward. You know, I've just started to scratch the surface on this tool personally, but so far it's incredible. It's 100% free and it's 100% confidential and it's designed for first responders. Your home agency probably has an EAP program, an employee assistance program as well. And this can help you and your family address everything from substance abuse to grief counseling, future planning, and many other things. You'll get in touch with your HR representative as a great way to just start looking at your benefits that you might have and see how you can start using those benefits to your advantage. If you're a spiritual person, reaching out to your own leadership and those that you trust can be an exceptional way to help connect you with your own spiritual beliefs and help you invest in your spiritual well-being which is going to support you in all of these endeavors in a lot of ways if you're looking for a great introductory course towards understanding resiliency and wellness programs naemt has an incredible diverse library of resources at your disposal. There's videos, there's articles, there's training seminars where you can learn about wellness programs and resiliency. Another great resource is the Code Green Campaign, whose mission statement literally includes to bring awareness to high rates of mental health issues in first responders and to attempt to reduce them. You know, what I hope to do with all of this talk is really to remind you that you are not alone with what you might be feeling. You are human, well, probably like the rest of us. You are vulnerable to these things and you need to take time to care for yourself. I want to remind you that you are the most important link in the chain of survival for our patients. You bring kindness and hope to the people that you meet just by showing up. Or when they see you out in the community posted up on the street corner, they're reminded that you're there and a moment away from helping them in their moments of need. They might see you outside of the fire station or sitting in your patrol car. Um, They might see you hold their hand when they're sick or respond to them when they're in their emergency or rescue them when they are in imminent danger. When you risk your life to try to save theirs, you are the most important piece of equipment that any agency could ask for. And it's okay for you to say that I'm not okay and that I need some help. There are resources out there to help you remember that and to help you in your time of need. Thank you for listening. I'm proud to be one of you, my fellow first responders. Thank you for all that you do and I highly encourage you to talk about this with your partners. Talk about this with your bosses, with your chiefs, with your line officers. Talk about this with your supervisors. Find out if you have a peer support team and how to access those resources, or maybe even how to participate in supporting one another through those peer support networks. I challenge each of you to remind each other of your value each and every day, and start the process of becoming resilient now. Thanks for listening to the Falk Salem podcast. We welcome any feedback you may have, or if you have suggestions for future content, please send an email to nicholas, that's N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S dot vaneps, V-A-N-E-P-P-S at falc.com. Thank you for all your hard work and have a safe shift.